really, this is the voice I talked in when I started the audiobook. And a couple of people heard it and said, Okay, you got to re record it. Oh, you're trying to be too quiet. Was, was oh, that, I was, was trying that when is that when you had the um the cold or whatever it was? No, I did I when I had a cold, I just I said I got to record something and I read one chapter. I read chapter 17. Yeah. When I and, and then I re, you know, I found like before the book was even published, it was like the guy got back to me and what keeps on happening? Well, I'll let you no, no. We have, this is the banter that I have at the beginning of the show. Okay. In fact, I wanted to get you talking about the igloo, but I turned on the recorder. To no, it. no. I can. I mean, I can talk about an igloo. I can talk about making igloos if you want, but, um, <laughs> which I've made many. I actually held the record at the school I work for, and I, I will guarantee you, I will hold that record. No one records these things, but I just assumed that I held the record as far as how long it takes to make an igloo big enough to sleep three people. That's a big igloo. Well, that's so you get yeah three people sleeping in an igloo. It's, I could do it with the team, right? We had a team of students right. and it's winter students, and and oftentimes that was twelve people. So you had twelve people working oh, fast, so. and I was the, I was an insane. There's a leadership technique that I call insano directive. It's very effective when building an igloo. Would yeah. you just yell at people? No, no, you would kind of like because people would like you would set the block in, right? You set the block in, and the block yeah. has to be kind of touching the other block and snow has just a slight sticky quality that gets stronger with time and the way you keep the block in place right it feels like it's just about to tip out is to put the next block in yeah so you lock it in and lock it in and lock it in oh it's it's almost like using regular um mortar yeah, but you're building a there's, a there's a working type time up for the for yeah. the mortar yeah yeah well yeah, it's similar yeah and um but so you're making a dome and the and you it's easy the first few rounds because there's hardly yeah. any tip to it but when they're tipping and they fall out, and you're like, "Who cares? Get a grab another block." And so you would have a team feeding the blocks, and a team in the igloo. Oh, because you'd have to put a keystone in, like to to lock that one in, but the rest of it is all sitting. Well, there. sometimes you hold it like this, or right. you put your head against it, or you yeah. put your shoulder against it, or you put the next one in, and it's only snow, right? So if it falls out, you just put another block in, and it oh, okay. doesn't hurt anyone if it falls out. It's not like a brick. Um, oh, so you're making snow bricks for the igloo, not not blocks. ice bricks. No, they're not ice. No, it's snow. It's snow. But it's, you just pack the snow really tight. You work hard in it, yeah. So you don't have to pack it very tight. Yeah. So there's a lot of air in it. So it's like basically big pieces of styrofoam, and they're about the size of a, you know, I mean, I'm, you can't see with, obviously, on the radio, you can't see my hands, but um, uh, it's about the Mike size Mike is of holding a, his hands about, about something about two feet apart. A box, like a that. donut box, right? Like yeah. the donut, flat donut box. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, one by one by one, and then there's a way you because they right they're going to be a little asymmetrical, so there's a way you chop the edges off, and and you get a little assembly line going, and it actually goes really fast. So from beginning to end, ready for three people to sleep in it, I got it down to forty eight minutes. Mm. Which, when you think about putting a tent up, takes twenty minutes, right? So you try to oh let's camp in the winter, well, like, oh let's put the tent old, up. Old tents, yeah. By the time you stake it out and get it all perfect, it's okay. about twenty. Yeah, minutes, see, yeah. I usually don't stake my tents because I'm not unless it's windy. Well, you, and if it is windy, I just throw my back and uh, my backpack in there. Yeah. So, but yeah, the thing is, you, you you've got to get that going because I guess when they're making the tent, uh, making the igloo, you're actually you have to keep moving or you get cold. So everybody's well. Moving. You got a lot of layers. It's usually do it in the day, and it's not as bad as you think. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, but what if you have an emergency? You have to make one out in the middle of nowhere. So. Then you set your tent up. <laughs> <laughs> but igloos are warmer 
yes. than, than a tent. Oh, they're very insulated. They're in, so the, not only does it feel like styrofoam, the weight of the things, it actually has the insulation qualities of styrofoam. There's a lot of air and packed snow. Yeah. So how do, how do you keep it from, why does it not melt from the inside? Or does it melt and harden? It's very slightly. It, it, it hardens just from time itself. Doesn't matter that you're exhaling and stuff. Maybe there's obviously some water moisture vapor, but you're not generating nearly enough heat to make it melt. I mean, to make it melt, it has to be above freezing, right? So it's never going to melt unless it's above zero degrees centigrade. And it, it, I mean, in a winter environment in the mountains of Wyoming, where I was doing most of my work, it will never, it would never get that warm. So at night, so yeah, it's not going to melt. It'll sag, it'll change shape over 24 hours, 48 hours. It'll definitely sag. Mm-hmm. You can stand up. You're like, hey, look, I'm standing up on day one, and then the next day, like, you try to stand up, and you can't stand up. You got to stand hunched because it's actually, sh- it's actually, there's a term for it. The s- but the snow is S- settling. It's settling, but it's creeping. It's got a creep factor. It's a that's cr- called plastic creep. Slow plastic creep is what it's called, and because it's deforming as a plastic, it's deforming as a. Yeah, it's not. It's not a solid thing. You're the. The block is not a solid thing. Yes, it's it's in a constant state of change. Even the block itself is shrinking and changing. It's happening very slowly, obviously, but, yeah. but you recognize it at the next day for sure. Yeah, my, Mike's not even here. To I thought I for some reason, after you already told me, I thought you were coming out here for like uh, move on, and then Upar is up there. It's like no, you're here for something completely I'm other. For, than- I'm going to hear. I'm here to talk about. Well, I, I'll be talking at a school about. Um, ultralight backpacking yeah so that doesn't have anything to do with igloos that's winter so this ultralight backpacking is summer only yeah i don't think you can ultralight backpack well i guess you could in the winter you could but certainly go lighter in yeah. the winter using ultralight skills but it, yeah the ultralight has a definition that means it's your base weight all the things in your pack and your pack itself excluding the consumables and excluding the your hiking outfit has to be under 10 pounds. What? You can actually do that? Oh, yeah, easily. Yes, easy. You can get... You know what? I'm thinking about it. You probably could. I've got a one-person tent that weighs like a pound. I think a little less than a pound. Yeah, and I've got a, I've got a two-person tarp that weighs 6.4 ounces. Yeah, and you just, you just use the tarp as the tent, right? Yeah. And, I mean, and a lot, you just throw it over a line and stake it or put a rock. Between two trees or something yeah. like that, sure, yeah. With string, yeah. So with the string, it's six point four ounces. So, <laughs> so you your your tent weighs a pound. So six ounces is a pound is sixteen ounces. So it's basically one third. A third of yeah. So I can get two people under my tent. So basically, each person is has an investment of three ounces, three point two ounces. So, and you're carrying one pound tent. So you could yeah. just get a tarp. I guess I could, but I just like being in a tent. And also the thing is, I when I take this tent, I'm only going for... The longest I went was I was... I told you I was doing... Um, we don't have to talk. We can talk about anything you want. Well, okay, yeah. We were... Uh, the longest I've gone with that with that one-person tent for uh, was a week, uh, a little over a week. I think it was six days in um, Escalante or Escalante, Utah. Escalante, you don't need a tent in Escalante, Utah. What do you have a... You don't even need leave it sleep out under the stars every night. I would sleep near the river. And there were mosquitoes. Oh, okay. They were nasty. In fact, I remember lying in the tent. So, yeah, so this is, a, this is the one time. That, so there's tents and mosquitoes are really the only time you will truly need a tent is for bugs. Yeah, and I don't like bugs flying in my face. I, I don't like mosquitoes. Very, nobody does, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't want to have to, like, wear, a, like, a veil over my face or whatever it is. 
or you know have one of those things where you go over part like there was ones that go like sure. over a part of you um i remember lying in the tent and looking up and, and this is at sunset and the mosquitoes were just coming out and watching the mosquitoes poking their, they poke their little noses. through the they're through trying. the, through the bugs um uh, uh netting yeah. trying to get at me i'm like three feet away um, I do remember the other thing I remember is I saw bats fly into the into the camp and start circling around and the mosquitoes went whoop and t- all took off. Oh, how interesting! They're like like the like they know the, the, the bat- bunny rabbit like that sees the the shadow of the, the 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 hawk. Yeah, they could hear. They somehow the mosquitoes know the bat the the echolocation. They can hear it. Oh, and they know bats are there and they leave. But you know the bats aren't hanging out in my tent uh, in my camp all the time, so. And they are only at sunset and, and during the night and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Dur- during the night, maybe not as much as right, right at sunset. Of course, you know, they, they you know, like hour before sunset or depending on the temperature where you are, that's when they start to swarm yeah. and get really nasty. And I always can't unless near- you're in the Adirondacks, and then they're really nasty between about May and yeah, August <laughs> all the time. This is uh, southwestern camping, so they generally leave you alone after about you know when it when it cools down in the day. They're never there. Yeah, they generally leave you alone about November in the Adirondacks. Yeah. So the, and I was camping next to rivers because I wanted, I was generally follow, I would go from one sure. creek or stream to another. I would, I would, you know, I didn't have a GPS actually. Nobody did. I had a topo map. Yeah, right. God bless you for that. That's yeah. how I, yeah. Yeah. So I would, I, I, um, I would go out there by myself, which was probably a stupid no, thing no, to do. No, 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 come on. Anyway, um, I got lost John a couple. went out by himself. Yeah, you know? couple, I got lost a couple of times. Uh, and when I went out there, it was during the week. I would not see another soul for sometimes two or three days, and it was wonderful. Oh, I've done many trips like that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and I would I would camp next to water sources so that at night I could you know I could wash my stuff. I could dip in the creek and you know wash off a little bit. Not not with water. I mean, I would just have a washcloth and mm-hmm. use the creek water. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just there by myself. So. Um, I, I took enough. Easily, I took enough. You yeah, could I took easily get your base weight under ten pounds. Yeah, I don't know if my base weight was under ten pounds, but it was totally doable, and I was fine with it. And it wasn't too heavy, and I did great with it. Yeah, people don't talk about Mike doing this, but he's a. Um, he's I a, spent seventeen plus years working for a very big school. I'm not going to use the name, and and since then I've worked on and off for guide services. So I've got over twenty years of outdoor guiding in big wild environments, so big mountains and. So that's a, what does the school have you out here for? Just to talk about. I, so ultra- I should I I have I mean they so they have an outdoor program, and they want me to talk about ultralight camping. I don't want it. So this is kind of, I very 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 cautious about mixing the two because, I you know, students parents listening to oh you're not going to mention this at all out there. Yeah, yeah. In fact, they'll probably find out after the fact and go. Whoa! That's my concern. Yeah, I don't want to make anyone worried that you know the the guy they've called to come and talk about ultralight camping is a ufo is, is wacko a u- weirdo yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. no the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this we we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain away from ideology we're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we? Uh 
for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio, Radio Mysterioso? latest book is Stories from the Messengers? Correct, with a subtitle of Owls, UFOs, and a Deeper Reality. So the first one um, dealt with, I think, your ideas about it and your experiences, but this one more deals with, and I haven't read it, I haven't read all of it, precious little of it, but it, it deals more with uh, people that have written to you, written to you with their experiences. Well, not some of them haven't written. I did a chapter on uh, Kenneth Arnold, and he never wrote me. So um, oh, okay. Kenneth Arnold had a pet owl. Did you know that? No. Kenneth Arnold had a pet owl. I mean, like, how how many people out there have a pet owl? Nobody. Well, Except I'm sure Ken, there's Kenneth a few Arnold. pet owls out there, yes. but Kenneth Arnold had a pet owl, and his daughter found it. Now, she's a little bit older than us, and she's now I think I know her on Facebook. Oh, no, that's his that's granddaughter. That's his granddaughter. Yeah. And she's on Facebook. The, Chanel or something. Chanel, yes. And she's been very helpful. She's been sort of the, the she's the liaison presently for the, for the, for the family. Yeah. And she. You can totally see his features in her, too. It's really weird to see her face. It's. it's like, wow. You can see it's Kenneth Arnold's, like, granddaughter. It's and amazing. Kenneth, yeah. So by all accounts, Kenneth Arnold was exactly who he seemed to be. He's very trustworthy. And I mean, I, I've. I read a lot of Kenneth Arnold stuff doing that short little chapter and uh-huh. everyone who met him says the same thing and, and he's there's a lot of YouTube videos where he comes across great as a as a witness and mm-hmm. as a, in this in his self he wrote a I mean did you read the book didn't you the the one that Kenneth Arnold wrote with he was on assignment for fate no, it wasn't Fate. It was Flying Saucers magazine. It made it was Fate when when it was still who's the little guy that short guy that was. The tiny guy that, that oh my was a god, um, Ray Palmer. Yeah, yeah, Ray Palmer. Exactly. Ray Palmer actually put on an ass- put him on assignment to to del- delve into this, and I think he did. He went and investigated um, Maury Island. Maury Island, Maury yes. Island, and met and met um, uh, Crisman and Fred Crisman, and had a gun, which is so great. Like, yeah. like he's playing private detective, and like, well, I'll put the old gun in my yeah. suitcase. Yeah, we should have Ken uh, Ken Thomas on. He has a whole book about. Yeah, that's like, that was the book that I used as reference. Okay, okay, for, okay. for Maury Island UFO, JFK. 
It was it was oh, JFK's and UFOs because it was he has that one too, yeah. but he has one that's specifically about specifically okay, about Rhode Island. Okay, I was the, I read the JFK one, which yeah, had yeah. a big big thing about um, uh, Crisman uh, possibly being one of the tramps and him being involved in right wing politics yeah. and saying that um, he was involved in some kind of fight with the Dero in a, in the South Pacific Islands at some point, and, and that he was the when when the intruders came out on television that he was yeah. the, that was oh that's based on me yeah that's my life they based that on me. And he yeah. was, you know, kind of hinted that he had FBI connections. So, yeah. And then the the uh, that was so uh, he had a pet owl. He had a pet owl. I never knew that. Did he have it before the sighting? No, it must have been after because his his daughter uh, Kim, uh, who's I don't think she would have been born at the time of the sighting in 1947, maybe. But um, uh, no, no, she's too young for that. I think so. Um, but. She was driving home with her sister, and she there was saw an owl plop out of the tree or something like that. It's a baby owl fall out of a tree as they were driving by, and they picked it up and carried it home, and then they nursed it back to health. And uh, her father, Kenneth Arnold, built an owl house. <laughs> and he like this is like there's I think there's like an era of like men who worked on ranches and like oh i'll build an owl house and yeah they just and slap just it together went and did it and went and got the wood and went got and it out of the wood pile and cut yeah. the pieces and, and exactly and she said it was really beautiful she kind of there's a audio interview which is on my website that she did years ago with race hobbs and royce fitzgerald and it's a wonderful interview and you can hear it in her voice she said you know what that was the most beautiful owl house <laughs> <laughs> until she was like, my dad made me a beautiful owl house. It's really touching. Uh-huh. And um, and that was, I remember I I listened to this whole thing, and this is right at the early stages of my owl stuff. And, and I was like, holy crap, like Kenneth Arnold had a pet owl. So she lived in Idaho, and I lived in Idaho. So I could call her up. We had the, like, I had the same area code. So she picked up the phone and she said, who is this? How did you find me? And I'm like, oh, well, let's hear. I got a couple questions. And we, she said, how, what, what, how did you... And uh, I won her over after a while. We actually had a few long phone conversations. Oh, Mike can win anybody over. Yeah. I, well, maybe I don't know, but I so yeah, per, per, you have an Idaho uh, exchange, which I still do on my on my cell phone. Um, uh, yeah. Well, it helped that you kind of spoke the same geographical language, anyway. Well, yeah. So, but it's so yeah. So she had some. It was and so there's all kinds of the implication is what I argue in the that chapter is that. It's very difficult. Like, there's no way to say Kenneth Arnold was an abductee. But what I can say is that, boy, there is a lot of stuff that he told personally that his daughter shared in her interviews that was that is written in um, other interviews and things like that. Um, if he, he certainly has all the things that sound like an abductee. He had orbs in the house. Hmm. I've never heard that. I haven't heard that till now. Yeah, that was his daughter talked about that. In in uh, like a family thing, like you know, afterwards or before too. I can't remember. It was after. I think it was afterwards. I bet all this. It was one of those contagion things, and it happened after. Because some people have the stuff happening before, like almost like a. Uh, well, he saw an orb when, as a little boy. He, mm. His grandmother's funeral. Ah. The grandmother was in state, and they did it in the homes at that point. And uh, I guess I'm not sure that he was in the. He saw an orb rise out of the, out of his grandmother, out of the coffin. Mm. I, I, she was, you know. Right when he was open a, coffin when he was a kid as a little kid yeah and so orbs uh, and it's so the implication is that and also like uh, uh, sneaky um, government doings and he felt his phone was tapped and you talk to any right. 
UFO abductee, and they're all like, oh, yeah, my phone's tapped. The government's tapped my phone. That's pretty common to hear. And yeah. so Kenneth well, Arnold for, said it, too. Yeah, well, for him, besides any abductee stuff he might be experiencing, he was talking to people. He was looking at things. I mean, the Air Force was involved because of the, the, the crash later of the of the two um, Air Force officers on, on, on the yeah. mountain. and. I but, think it, oh no! But that cra- the, the Air Force officers weren't on the mountain. That was that's the Maury Island event. They had the they had the the wreckage, the stuff that got ejected, the molten slag that got ejected from the donuts. They put it in a that's right, box. that's right, that's right. And then that was they they that was that the, was on the plane that crashed. that was on the plane that crashed, and yeah. that really affected him emotionally because it was like, oh my god, another plane crash and more dead. You know, because he was looking for a plane crash. He was looking for a plane crash on the flanks of Mount Rainier. Uh, Rainier. Yeah, and so. On the way back from somewhere, he just said, "Oh, I know. There's this. There's a crash here. Let me let me circle and look a little bit." Well, no, he was he was pur- purposely went out to. Oh, look okay. For the I crash. thought he'd gone on a like a um, a business trip, and he was on the way back, and he said, "Oh, there is a there's a search and rescue going on, or at least no, a search I think for." He, I think he was. He was I think he was genuinely looking, and I think he was. There was a reward offered if he found. Oh, okay, so, okay. So he was flying around looking for it. Now, I don't have the dates exactly, but the crash of the plane happened in the summer of 1947. Thirty days later, Kenneth Arnold had his uh, sighting. sighting of the UFOs. Yeah. Thirty days later, they actually found the crashed plane. Mm. So I think the crashed plane was under snow and it just had to melt out. Um, oh, okay. So, so he was very affected. So, you know, one more thing, he was fascinated by synchronicities and number sequences. Yeah. You go to a, go to a sit, go to a UFO conference and sit in the corner with the with the abductees. Everyone, you can actually you can. If you like, you can ask an abductee, "What's your number?" And they'll go, "Oh, my number is eleven eleven. And the person next to them will go, "My number is one two three four. And then the next person will say, "My number is thirty three." You know, and it's so it's this funny thing where people. Where does that come from? People get stuck with number sequences, like people like so. Kenneth Arnold was fascinated by these number sequences, yeah. and I will say, like this is tough to say anything equivocally, and right, uh, you know, but so, but. A lot. If you talk to UFO abductees; they all all have a number. I say my number is. I have to ask Bashar. They're like, what, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Who channels Bashar? Is that Jay Z Knight? No, no, no. It's not Jay Z Knight. That's uh, Ramtha. She yeah, that's right. Ramtha. that's right. That's <laughs> Ramtha. Right. So I'm drawing a blank on his Anka. name. Anka. Daryl Anka. Yeah. yeah. I asked. Like, just I interviewed him. Said, Daryl, what's your number? He went ten ten. I didn't even skip a beat. Like you could ask, you know. So. It's very. Everyone has their little number that haunts them. This is something that's not um, very generally well publicized, or I haven't been paying attention. It's in the owl books. Yeah. It's covered. I covered in the owl books. Yeah. So I'm all about like this stuff, unless you're immersed in this thing. So, but as I've been hanging out with you for a couple of days now, and we constantly do this thing. Well, here's a story. Oh, do you know this person? And I'll ask you, do you know this person? And you'll go, No, I don't know that person. And yeah. you'll ask me, like, Oh, I'm working with this guy. And do you know this person? I'm like, I never heard of that person. And like, I'm basically all the people I'm. I know are abductees. Yeah. And there's like this disconnect between the actual people claiming the contact experience and the, and some of the researchers. Yeah. And I think the researchers are, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems silly to funny to me. Like they're, they're gun shy about like sitting down with the abductees and saying, what's what, what's up, what's going on. Are they really a gun shy or do they just not talk the same language or, cause there's only a few people that are abduction researchers, but they're also a therapist and they're totally into it and they're not, 
when did the Robinson panel come out and uh, what did Tom DeLonge say last week or whatever. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. They're more into what is the experience of the person. There's no, and they're also, there's precious few pure researchers that just talk about abduction, but are not, but also, you know, are also are doing some kind of serious or academic or whatever research. There, there's a few of them. I can't yeah. name and them And most right of now. the, so a lot of the, so like a lot of the people who are doing the abduction researcher are therapists and they're right. first and foremost a therapist where they're trying to, their, their, their job is to help people. People are coming to them that are showing signs of being traumatized or severe worries or they're, they need help. And so the therapist is there to provide therapy. Yeah. What do you think of my, because I keep um, going back and forth with you on this. I've got this, me, friends of mine have this very deep suspicion of people that are UFO abduction therapists because uh, consciously or not, the narratives they're looking for are supposedly they w- want to have the match the other narratives, and this becomes a to me it becomes in a way a vicious circle. But you're saying it's not totally like that, and you. But it becomes a vicious circle if you're a, any kind of researcher in your in your. That's doing, true. In your, I mean, I'm sure like the people it who does, re- but you're dealing with malleable memories in this case, right? Because yeah. memories are not they're they're not um, they're not codified until somebody starts thinking about them and talking about them. Yeah. You, you have to encode them in some way. But especially if you're in trauma, you have to talk to somebody, and that therapist says, "Well, what do you think about this?" That's part of the the healing process, yeah. I think. But if it's a UFO abduction researcher thinking, "What did the aliens do to you?" What did you, you know? And I th- th- do you see that as a problem? Because I always saw it as a huge problem. I don't think it's a huge problem. Oh, it's definitely there, right? So everyone brings their biases and their own their own baggage and their own. I mean, Bud Hopkins, who I knew, and was a remarkably kind, caring man, mm-hmm. remarkably. And I and it's so I've heard, also heard some stories where, and at the same time, so I he was very old when I met him, and he was was his health was poor when I met him and worked with him, and he had a you know like the laundry hampers you would buy at the hardware store to yeah. put your laundry in the big things that take two hands to lift up when they're full of laundry. Um, he had one of those in the corner of his house there and it was just all like these kind of tattered yellow manila folders and they had like one would be called uh, screen memories and the other one would be called daytime abduction and the other one would be called nighttime abduction and the other one would be called, you know, and so then, and then there was these paper letters slapped in there and they were, it was, it was a heavy, so his filing system was to have hampers full of letters. Well, he eventually. So his this. So I asked him what this was, right? So he had a hamper. And it was heavy to pick up, and I said, "Does this like, is this your archive of letters?" And he was like, "That's from last month." Oh, that's before they've been filed. That's before they've been filed. Yeah. That's like the first that they come. He opens his mailbox and puts them in the laundry hamper. Oh, okay. And then they get filed away, and it was shocking. And the look on his face was like, "Do you get back to these people?" And just the look on his face was like, "Are you kidding? Absolutely not! I can't get back to these people. That's I'm I'm flooded. Like I can't." So, and um, there's a abduction researcher. Well, let's I'm cautious to call her an abduction researcher. She certainly does some research into the people who claim the abduction. And then I'm so I'm gonna back up and backpedal about ten steps here. There's that within the UFO research community, the term abduction is one of those hot button words where yeah it's contentious either, now yeah it's a little contentious so experience or but i just use abduction just because that's the word we're stuck with that's like saying i it's like i said this the other day it's like saying like oh you have a runny nose would you like a facial tissue <laughs> right? it doesn't really have the same ring you know you have to kind of like yeah but there's not there's a semantic uh quality to abduction uh, abductee that's different than experiencer or um well, whatever you word they're trying that to me, that's a, it's a ridiculously neutral word that shouldn't be used. 
but I don't like abduction, abductee either, because that sounds like, okay, we'll just, we're going to track them down. They've been taken away by something against their yeah, will. It's, it's a mess. Yeah, it's, yeah. There's no easy answer, but that's what the word we're stuck with. Unless if you can come up with a better word, I'll, we're, I'll use it. But, and I've, you know, everyone, every, everyone's gone through this. Uh, we were talking about um, therapists. And... Oh, therapists. So, so therapist is there to provide therapy. Yes. So um, there's a, there's a researcher, excuse me, a, 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 a therapist. Uh, her name is Janet Colley. She's out of uh, uh, near Seattle. She's she's published a few books. They're very interesting. She's she's much more on the progressive therapeutic coming out of the other end of trauma with the with the transformative experience. She's all about the transformative power of these experiences. And in sort of people were saying, well, wow, you know, how come like you have a different results than, than Bud Hopkins? And it's like, well, the people who would go to Bud Hopkins wouldn't go to come to me. So there's a self-selection taking place yeah, on exactly. multiple levels. The people yeah, yeah. who are like, want the groovy love and light space brothers, they gravitate to the, to certain people and the people who have the, who want to have the, uh, come to, you know, and people have very traumatic, dark, scary experiences. Yeah. And, and uh, so there's self-selection going on both ends, you know, right, the, right. The, 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 the actual yeah. people seeking I, I've, the therapist. I've read David Jacobs. This sounds like what's going on with me. I'm going to go to David Jacobs and then that's just going to be reinforced. And there's also, if you live in Philadelphia, that's what you're, you know, you can call David Jacobs up. He's right down the road. So that's, right. that's you know, location is one thing too, another thing. Yeah, yeah. Although I guess you could do these things by Skype too. Ooh, I would not want to get hypnotized by Skype. Really? On Skype, get hypnotized? Like what is the, you know... I, I mean, I don't know. I, mean, I haven't been through it. I don't know what to I say. I would be very cautious. Really? Okay. Yeah, because people do that now, but they do it for like therapy and stuff. Well, yeah. And actually other people have done it. There's lots of people who do it on like in the abduction research lore that do it. And I and so I, I'm not an expert in hypnosis in any way, shape or form. Um, though, I, though I did have a hypnosis, hypnotic session today. Um, earlier, just a few hours ago. Yeah, I was so, going to ask you if it was appropriate very, to talk about that. I would be willing to talk about the doorway. I don't want to talk about the other stuff. Okay. <laughs> no, the please, other stuff is just too like. I mean, I haven't synthesized it, and and so uh, I we're ruining but, everything by talking about it. But please go ahead. I, I, Yvonne Smith. I'm in Los Angeles right now. Yvonne Smith is an abduction researcher who has uses hypnotic regression as part of her th- process of of therapy. This is a in some circles. This is an extremely questionable, contentious form of research it, it is for me and I've, I've admitted this to mike but um i also like to hear what he has to say because i have not ha- gone through what you have gone through well so so i agree and I, so there's a so people who've been through these experiences like no can i swear you can swear all you no like shit this stuff is hard 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 to assimilate into your daily life and someone is out there saying like i let's try this hmm. right so let's try it and now, I've talked to a lot of people who've gone through hypnotherapy, and this is something... So there's books out there, right? You look at books... Pe- and, people have to like realize, too, that the, the other thing is Mike has gone to a, a variety of different... And I... So... so not just like one ago, person. talking just on the to, phone with, with And Mac he does Tony's. not make a big... Uh, he doesn't make a fetish out of, I, this has to mean something, or this is what it is. Go ahead with the Mac So story. Mac Tony's, years ago, like he was like I was saying, I think this was when I was going to go to see... I think I was going to see Barbara Lamb. 
Yeah. And I was like, what do I do? Like, do I, you know, it's like, and he was like, you know what you should do? You should go have a hypnotherapy session from one of each hypnotherapist. Just oh, so this was difference. his idea. And I, well, I was, and I was like, Mac, I've been thinking about that. I think it would be so cool to do that. Like yeah. what a way to like tap into there. Is there something different? Is there something? And I've been to, so well, let me just, Leo Sprinkle, I tried to do a hypnotherapy session with him probably in 2007. Mm-hmm. I'm doing that. And nothing came up, and I was so nervous. I was so nervous. So nothing came up then. I did a session with Bud Hopkins in 2008. A little bit came up. Not much. Sort of reinforcing the memories I had consciously. Like, the, oh, I don't really trust this memory. And afterwards, it was like, well, I had that same memory replayed, and, and a few little nuances showed up. Um, I did a session with... Barbara Lamb and very little came up. You know what came up is I had a great view of the sidewalk in my neighborhood. Like, <laughs> oh my God, that's, that's exactly how the pebbles looked under that light in the corner of the, like where the sidewalk meets the street there and the pebbles all get caught on the curb. And so that's what I got out of that one. A couple little, but nothing. A, a liminal area. So visually I got a great little snapshot of the sidewalk in my neighborhood. Um, <laughs> and then... I did a session with Mary Rodwell, and some stuff came up, but it was all kind of a little frenetic and a little mishmash. And and then the session I did today with Yvonne, we covered similar stuff to what I covered with Mary Rodwell, whatever now, almost a year ago. And um, but it was came out with a little more linear clarity, but it was the same exact story, right? So I so I basically retold the same story that I told. Ten months ago, or something, nine months ago, and um, oh, and I don't really want to go into that because it's a mess, and I don't really trust it. And at the same time, it, it, we, so I'm, well, I, I, you I'm know, I don't want to, you to talk about it because I think you that one of the things I admire about Mike is he does not force a narrative on the things that he's that has happened to him. He just said, okay, this is possible. This is possible. What well, can I take it, from this? This was a, it's a story. I certainly had yeah. a story presented. Yeah, but the, only in these last two sessions, you said. Well, yeah, only in the last two sessions. Before, it was just a little... But he still doesn't take it literally. Well, there was... So, so for instance, I had a missing time event in 1974. That's... What is that? Over 40 years ago now. Yeah. You've, you wrote about it on uh, Hidden Experience. I've written about it and talked about it yeah. in books. And, and right. So, it's, so, it's, I, I, so now I've told the story so many times, I don't know. Well, like, am I telling the real memory or am I just telling the story right. that I've told so many times? Yeah. And um, But I always said, like, you know what? kind of got home and it should have been you know the 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 11 o'clock news was just ending and under the hypnosis session with bud hopkins like there's a clock in our kitchen and my mom used to turn the lights off at a certain point at a certain hour so this kitchen was lit a certain way and i remember i had the clearest little snapshot view of that clock and it said eleven twenty. now does that mean it happened i got home at eleven twenty? i can all i can say is i can say very I see, I can say I got a very clear image of the clock at eleven twenty. Does that confirm anything for me? Doesn't confirm it, but it's an interesting little thing, yeah. Yeah. a little tidbit that. But right. it reinforces what I already knew. Like basically, that that's I said that was a, like the eleven o'clock news was ending, so it would have been around eleven thirty is what I've always said. And then I get a snapshot view of the clock at eleven twenty. Yeah. But you were saying that consciously, so who knows if that who was knows? just something that came up just to reinforce your But it was idea. so clear. Yeah. It's such a beautiful... It doesn't make it... So I don't know if that doesn't make it right. true, but... Yeah. 
another thing about Mike is I bring the stuff up and he doesn't get offended. <laughs> well, I not I'm not there's you could I mean, there's ways because memory me, is but, so, memories are so, I, uh, oh, like a, I said I'm got through but memories are so plastic and malleable and like the e- like even. the igloo it's changing yeah. shape yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah, I don't I I and it's funny because what it's what it so I some of the things I've written about like I put it on the blog right away. Yeah. And some of those things happened seven, eight years ago. Yeah. And I go back and I look at them. And this, and I have been like I'm from Michigan, right? I'm very polite and like, oh, don't you, don't you let, don't, oh, I'll be fine without dinner, kind of thing, kind of, you know, like <laughs> oh, like <laughs> so, so the uh, stories I tell, like I tell them over and over and over again, and yeah. then and then I look back at the original text. And the original text that I wrote is like more dramatic and there's more oomph to it and there's more details to it. Mm. And I think I'm undertelling them just out of sheer politeness. Mm-hmm. So like, so like, it's not like I'm, it's not like the fish is getting bigger. Yeah. The know? fish is turning into fish, a fish is getting turning shrinking. Into a, it's shrinking. So, uh, I still have the key elements of the story, but there's like, I forgot that little detail. Like I don't tell them that little detail. It's an interesting little detail. And I yeah. reread the stuff that I wrote in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm undertelling it now. Yeah. Well, there's also the the question of, you know, can you go back to a moment and have it be accurately recalled in a way that people would think of as a nice snapshot, as if somebody was there with a camera? And, and I, don't, I don't think I don't think you can. That, that's not that may not even be the point. Um, the point is how was that? How was whatever experience you had? Uh, processed remembered how did it affect you how do you feel about it how do you talk to other people about it how do you integrate it into your life that's probably far more important than if somebody was standing there with a video camera would they have seen an alien come in and grab you or whatever that i'm getting to the point where i think that that's meaningless the meaning comes in for the individual and unfortunately that's not something you can go you can usually go and you know put in filing cabinets and stuff. It has to be dealt with by the, by the person, individual on an individual basis. And I think that's to me that it's coming to the point where the 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 importance of this is the individual experience, not what a ufologist can put in their book or they can make into a TV show or whatever. And I don't think ufologists are really like may I maybe they are. I don't know. I mean I don't think they're like they don't have TV shows in mind when they're putting out these books. No, no. I mean like I, I don't think a lot of them do. But and they, I and. There ain't many people making money off of UFO books. No, there's not. Although there's probably a lot of people that want to. However, it would be but, nice to make but, money off of UFO yeah. books, but it ain't happening. Yeah. You, you, my, I think you're taking my point that it, the, the, the important part of this is individual experience, which cannot be codified in some way where it's like, we're going to treat this person this way, and this is what happened to you. And this is, you know, if you start using models like that, I don't think it helps the individual in whatever they're trying to do to integrate something that's bothering them. I agree. Yes. So in it's in your the the individual experience is going to I mean it's going to morph slightly over over retellings and over the years and 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 then you add to the mix that there's like this induced amnesia that shows up in this stuff and people forget stuff and then there's a totally normal for people to say like oh i was sitting down on the couch and it was like uh, you know six months later and i jumped up off the couch and i was like oh my god i saw ufo that night i don't remember it at all until right now that shows up over and over again oh yeah culture. that's totally common as a, as a dean Raiden said to me once if you don't have a place to put a memory it just falls off the table yeah and there's no place there's no box to put those things in so it just kind of 
Yeah. Until something triggers it. Oh, and what the, what might that be? You know, who knows? It's probably different for every every person. Although there was a mass triggering with the cover of communion. Whether that's tr- yeah, that so there's in and I've speculated about it in the second book, and, and Whitley Strieber himself has roughly speculated about it, saying that that was like that felt like. I don't want to put words into his mouth, so I'll just say what I feel, that it feels like a staged, orchestrated event. Like somehow, wherever the UFO occupants are, they could stage manage that cover. Mm -hmm. So it got put on that book, so it had exactly the impact it had. It feels like that book was meant to be a success and meant to be a, a... uh, pop culture phenomenon of yeah. some sort where everyone in America on some form or another had to walk by that cover of communion when they were in the grocery store. Yeah. So I also look at it as a, a kind of a, um, something that's completion backwards or unstuck from time thing where it was, it was, it was meant to be important and the meaning just happened to happen in 1980, whatever, whatever, when the yeah. book came out. Um, and that we look back at it now um, as a, as a watershed moment, but I think that uh, if you look at meaning as a as a connecting principle or a dimension rather than time or causality, the powerful meaning of that face resonates backwards and forwards through time. Does that make sense to you? It's, it's I don't even know what I'm saying here, but, yeah, but I, I think I, it's so... not where it's like, oh my God, that happened to me. It's kind of more like this is significant. This is significant. Uh, new meme symbol archetype or whatever that people hooked into to it certainly became an archetype yeah. afterwards i mean yeah. every snowboard yeah, I mean, bumper it, sticker has got a, a gray alien face on it there's, there's one sitting on my desk yes somewhere, yeah there, so, there's a little yellow one up behind you yeah. like, there it is right there yeah. and uh and there it is yeah that's the classic and that was so that showed that's that so in essence that that being mm-hmm. showed up in at the end of uh 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 Close Encounters. Like yes, they, yeah. They were there. You know, the funny little thing with the... That, that, Where that did that... The, who who does... Is that like... Who designed that? Was that Phil Tippett or somebody designed that? Well, it's my understanding that they worked with uh, Heineck to, to come up okay, with Okay, okay. Yeah. And I don't, and obviously it's a Hollywood thing, but... So, right, right. I mean, what, what, does that mean Heineck dropped off like, you know, three Xeroxes and <laughs> and then they, they kind of went with it? So it doesn't look exactly like... No, it doesn't. It, they basically look like, you know, kind of cartoony... They look like cartoony, cute aliens very cute compared aliens, yes. compared to the, uh, and there were children in the outfits too. And with so long you've got fingers that, and, yeah. and skin tight clothes and, and kind of ridiculously, you know, the the it's pretty corny the 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 little things that they wore over their heads basically. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but that, that, that so, that, so it did the, it, it did it was there in to the in, meme as well. It was there in. 1977 or eight, seven or eight, something like that. Yeah, and then it showed up, and then. No, I think so it was ten eight, years later. Yeah, and Star the, Wars and, was seventy-seven, and that was a few years after. Yeah, so then it showed up around ten years later with the publication of Communion, and um, the heads. Uh, I mean that that alien head certainly scared a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of people saying like, "Oh, I had to turn that book. You know, it was on the bookshelf or something like that. I had to. Or it was on the. Whenever I saw it on the coffee table, I flipped it over. I couldn't look at it. I know people who've thrown it out. Couldn't have it in the house. Freaking yeah. out so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, not because I, their their mind says, well, I saw that and it scared me or there's something deep within me. But it's, yeah, it's like it, it would be like, you know, having a picture of what? Oh, a, a monster or a car accident a car or something, accident or something like that. A horrible thing to have, yeah, like, a, you know, a 
anything like the just, just back in the, in the back of the butcher shop you could come here yeah. and take a single picture that would gross everyone out so yeah um, so and that and that sort of existentially grossed a lot of people out i guess well it was fear yeah fear and grossed out is yeah, yeah fear i'm thing, sorry so. existentially um, um frightened them yeah um because there was i figure like it's a hook for them to put a fear on that they couldn't have a face on before in a lot of ways or unless you take it literally or you could take it literally and, and say, say that they they have a buried memory of seeing a gray alien in their yeah. house. You know? See that, that this is my personality, Mike. As soon as somebody says that's the thing that it is, and it's and it's so simple, I get very suspicious when somebody has. And a I'm not saying it's name. right. I'm not saying I'm right. Yeah, that I'm is saying, a possibility. That possibility. is one of the that's possibilities to look at, it, and yeah. it's the popular possibility. Yeah, and yeah, you know, that's if it was an X Files episode, that's how we would treat it. Mm-hmm. So, what about the door? The door. Okay, that was I was gonna. So uh, at some point, so we'll, we'll complete the conversation. So the, uh, <laughs> so the, uh, so Yvonne sits there and says, "What do you want to talk about?" And I said, "Let's. I think I should talk about the event that happened in 2013." She said, "Okay." And we took a little. She took some notes and she asked some questions. She was very formal about it and very. She'd obviously done this many, many times. Oh, she sent it hundreds, maybe thousands, thousands times. I'm sure at this point. Um, and then I, I. Uh, you know, uh, so she and I said, you know what? When I'm under, just at some point slip in. Can you ask, you know, why owls? She said, okay. She wrote down with a pen, and so like we're getting through this thing, and a bunch of stuff happened that is so weird, and I can't talk. I mean, I don't want to talk about it publicly until I process it in some better way than I just. Yeah, an hour this later. just happened today. But two hours. <laughs> this happened like four hours ago or something. Yeah. Like that. Uh, and. Uh, so probably a little more than four by that time. It's this time. So, but um, less than twenty four hours ago. Less than twenty four hours. That's where that's completely safe. Um, so, uh, Mike had to have oh, some so wine asked this it, evening. Like after this, after <laughs> this little thing, she said, um, and after the, getting through the stuff that I don't want to talk about, she said, "And what about the owls? What about the owls?" And I just thought for a second, and I'm and I'm like in a. And it's not like the aliens where they're telling me. It's not like they was no, no. You're just in up. kind of a, a relaxed, slightly altered state of of uh, f- almost free association, or yeah. at least. And my and so what I said was, she asked, "What about the owls?" And I said, "The owls aren't important." I said it in much longer halting way than I'm going to say it now because we'd be here for a half hour if I did it in like hypnosis speak because mm-hmm. there's long pauses and everything. Yeah, yeah. If anyone's ever listened to a real hypnosis session, yeah, they take forever. Oh my god, it's deadly dull because it's. Long pauses. Everyone talks really quietly. <laughs> long pauses. Yeah. So, um, so what does the owl mean? And I said, the owl's not important. doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it's like a sign thumbtacked to a door. <laughs> it's, it's the door that's important. Yes. So we're on one we're side of the Just looking door. at that Twin Peaks book, the owls are not what they seem. Yeah. We're on one side of the door, and it's this cramped, claustrophobic hallway. And, and on the other side of the door is this vast infinite mysterious complicated realm and that's so the owl's not important the owl's just the symbol on the door and even as I was saying that in the hypnosis I was like this is pretty good like you know like in your writing text you know and you're like get a, like, get on a roll and like ooh I'm on this is good mm-hmm. and as i was saying that even in like happens once every 10 years yeah yeah and i was just like <laughs> i was right there in the like lying on the couch with my eyes closed you know talking very slowly and i'm thinking in my head this is yeah this is pretty good and um so because it's so not literal or what are you expected or is it 
I don't know. You know, I kind of am at the point where I like I'll could change my mind tomorrow. You know, like I, I like <laughs> I like in some in one of the essays that the essay that I wrote for Robbie's book, um, I basically I said something like, you know, like my mind is as my opinions are as fickle as the wind. You know, they'll change on a Monday and another you know, another concept or another way of thinking about it will rise up on a Tuesday and then by Wednesday it'll all be blown away and some third thing will show up. So you're starting to sound like Whitley Strieber here. I will. That's well, I mean, but at the same time, it's just, I think we're, we're, we're talking about a true mystery. Yeah. And no, no, I, I really respect that attitude actually. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to solve it. And, and we might find a, so what did Nick Redfern say? You know, you, you collect more and more data, and all you do is have to buy more uh, filing cabinets. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you, and you don't, and you label them, and then you put them away, and it's like, well, what's it in that filing cabinet? It's yeah. not. It might not even be important, but the fact that you brought it up and filed it is the important part. You may never have to look at it again. Well, there's, I'm sure there's a, some statistician who could crunch the numbers. And, and, yeah. and I meant for you personally. It's yeah. like, okay, or, or anybody. It's like, okay, here's the thing that happened. here. This thing, and to bring all that information up is the part of the process of coming to some kind of um, acceptance, peace, whatever you want to call it. So it's not bothering. You don't seem to. Are you bothered by your experiences? Yes, I could say I'm bothered by them. But at the same time. Because you don't seem to be driven crazy by them. You just well, kind I of was like, driven crazy. I would say, yeah. like, so you, you, we, when I, between, and I have this as a number I throw around. Because it has to at, the, at first. Between 2006 and around 2011, and there's a, I spent 95% of my waking hours wondering if I had gone insane. Mm, that's right. And I was dealing with so many synchronicities that was off the charts. And, and I've, and I think I got, whether I accepted it and they all calmed down because I haven't gone to zero. I'm still getting synchronicities all the time. Um, and the croissant doesn't count as one. So uh, <laughs> he took a picture of a croissant this morning. that looks like an owl's face. I, was, I took two bites out of it and I was like, Hey, 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 <laughs> uh, there it is again. And um, I think I'm going to use that picture of the little owl I took with you in the background, the little, um, uh, Acoma chicken, right? if you look at it closely, it's a little bit funny. That's or a, it's a, but it looks it's not a, it's a very, so highly stylized it might yeah. not be an owl at all but that's right it is sort of owlish but well i got another thing that is one but anyway we we'll photoshop th- in a little yeah okay <laughs> or just use that one with uh, you and ryan and i or the croissant yeah or the croissant <laughs> yeah well just use a croissant screw it because one of them, the last time you were on i used a, a a crop circle owl yes it was a crop circle owl yes <laughs> august 10th that, that appeared um so that i have a whole bunch of august 10th synchronicities involving owls and crop circles it's, mm. so Oh, we've got sound effects in the background. Yeah. Well, you can, that's okay. It doesn't bother me at all. I can barely hear it yeah. on here, so don't worry about it. Yes. More, I'm more worried about getting us on here and not uh, uh, distorting, which is, it's been pretty good. And I interrupted your story. What was my story? I did have a glass of wine. That uh, was a long time. That was a couple, it was over an hour ago now. We were, you were mentioning, you were talking about being frightened for many years and taking many years to just get over the, just not thinking about all the time um, and having well, I think, yeah, oh, yeah, so so 95% of my waking hours were spent worried that I would, had gone insane. And mm-hmm. and that mellowed out. I th- on, And I've said this before, I think I just got bored with being so freaked out. It wasn't serving me. You know, like, oh, That's this isn't exactly working. how I came out of my paranoid period. You got bored with it? I got tired of feeling scared all the time. Yeah. I just made a conscious decision to not be scared all the time because I was sick of it. I don't know whether I made a conscious decision, but it just got boring in a yeah. way. Like, yeah. Oh God, more of this. Like it's not like. 
Paul Krasner said the same thing to me. He, had a, he was doing JFK research, and I said, I talked about my paranoia, and he talked about his, and he said, well, what snapped you out of it? And I, got, I said, I got tired of it. And he said, it gets boring, doesn't it? That was his exact line. So maybe that's, yeah, so I got kind of bored. It took about six years for it to get boring, but it was finally got boring near the end. And there was some interesting stuff, and I, I, so being freaked out got boring. Yeah. I worked, there was a And little, it takes a lot out of you. There was a little health food store in the town that I worked in, and these women would work there, and I would ride my bike to the health food store and get my kale and my organic scallions or whatever, and, and, and they would... And I would like take one of them aside, and here's what happened today. Oh my God, this thing happened today. It had to do with owls, and it had to do with this thing, and this UFO stuff, and it was a synchronicity, and it freaked me out, and it like connects to this other thing. And and they were so wonderful, the staff at the little health food store. And so for oh, here comes Mike. Yeah, here comes Mike. Like, get ready, (laughs) he's going to corner spec by the you know by the organic lettuce, and and uh, um, but yeah, there was a handful of women there that were incredibly patient with me, so I didn't have a therapist. I think part of the reason is that they were women and they're used to hearing people like they want to nurture you up back to not being crazy or being worried. And I had some male friends that I could talk to, too. Yeah. And they had a different and it was so that there's a valid point there. But their men friends had a different kind of like, you know, you know, suck it up and deal buttercup, you know, kind of thing. And yeah, pull your boot, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And the women would listen. And the women would listen and a little more, a little more. And and uh, and they, you could tell they had no way to process it. No, they just, they, they saw you were in distress and it's like, okay, whatever, because yeah. you're not obviously like, you know, you're not a drooling maniac. I never quite got that bad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, it was very, it was, and when we were laughing about it now, but it was, it was very stressful. Yeah. And you just got tired of it. So then, uh, so what happened? I mean, how did you So work I started yourself? a blog. <laughs> oh, Okay. Just to work it out. And then started writing it all down. And so you could you can go back to the first few you can go back to the to read the all the blog posts in two thousand nine. Where's Red Pill Junkie? You know, he can he you can you don't have to read between the lines to know that I was freaked out. <laughs> yeah. And I was trying every and I was you could see me kind of searching, like, how does this what does this mean? What does the creative process mean if you're this freaked out? You know, who's what's the patterns? You know, and I was seeing patterns and symbolism everywhere, and that's kind of the you know, the the paranoia of, of of maybe paranoia is the wrong word, but I mean this stuff was I was seeing seeing patterns where now you probably wouldn't or you would could, if you did see the pattern you would not take it as seriously. Yes, that's a better way to put it. I'm I suspect there's little funny number patterns and stuff. That's that's an easy one to latch on to, but there's all kinds of other things too yeah. that that were kind of freaking me out. So there yeah. was one. So here's one that that so very early on my there's a his name is Michael McDonald. He's in Mac Tony's book. Mm-hmm. And he kind of talks about some. He never ta- doesn't talk about abduction straight up. He has since talked about seeing a UFO out the window. That was after Mac Tony's book. But Mike McDonald or Michael McDonald were exactly the same age. Both Scottish. We started the blog. His blog and my blog were started forty-eight hours apart. Excuse me, twenty four less than twenty four hours apart. Basically the same day. Without even you didn't even I had no idea who he was. And you didn't even know who he was. I I found out he's a friend of Max and I found out afterwards it was kind of like little cross pollination with with, you know knowing other people on the web and stuff. So and I've talked to him a bunch of times and we're Facebook friends now, now almost ten years later. And um but we started and the little you go down the little checklist of the things we had in common. We you know, 
same like how same age same first name which michael's a pretty common first name but still yeah. you yeah. know it's worth yeah. putting on the putting on the spreadsheet when you try to make sense of a pattern right and um started the, started our blogs less than 24 hours apart within the same day hmm. and what is his what was his process like he was kind of doing the same thing. He was kind of trying to make sense of the parano- or the uh, synchronistic or paranormal by doing basically public self therapy. Exactly. Yeah. Which I found was very therapeutic. It was because then people you would resonate with people and they got back to you. But, but I don't know Paul how Jackie I got would, in touch would, with you would, at first. Maybe it was Mac told me. I don't know. I think you were doing. You were. You had UFO Mystic was up, and you yeah. were often a guest on on Banal of America. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but then the the fact that we, independently we knew Mac that that helped too. Yeah, and I called Mac right out of the blue. I heard him on on on. Uh, oh, you know what? Paul Kimball introduced me to Mac. Yeah, and I found Mac through um, uh, Banal of America. I heard him talking, and I was like, "Holy crap! I got to talk to this guy." Mm-hmm. And I just called him up. It was like, I whatever the dialed information. It was before the internet, before I had internet access to that kind of thing. So. <laughs> I don't know how I did it, but I was definitely a f- telephone with a cord that went into the wall when our first conversations. Yes, ours too. And maybe, maybe, maybe all of them. The yeah. last time I talked to him was three or four days before he died, and before that, I talked to him um, after he was on Coast to Coast. And I did a couple of emails with him after he was on Coast to Coast, and it was that was like three weeks before he died. I, I listened know. to the whole show. And your voice, you were on the show. You got you were on the call-in. Yes. Yeah. And I called, because I told him I'd be listening, and then I got through, and I called in and asked a question. I can't remember what the question was. I can't believe you remember that. At the end of the show, as soon as he's, they, you know, when the Inca dance, boop, 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 yeah. I hear that music playing, and Max said, oh, thank you so much, and he hung up, hung up, and I immediately dialed the phone, and he picked it up, he's like, Greg, what, what, what are you calling right now? I said, you did great. You know, you hit it out of the park. He's like, I'm so worried. I don't know what I said. I said, you did great. You know, you'll, you'll be on again. Don't worry about it. And then I talked to him for like an hour afterwards, like a debrief after the yeah. show. Because I, I, I thought it was so cool that he got to be on Coast to Coast. And it was interesting because... He didn't Ge- seem like somebody that should be on Coast to Coast, which is why it was so and good. And George Norrie, you could hear it in George Norrie's voice. He was like, like, kind of like, wow, this is a fun conversation. This yeah. is a good one. Yeah. You could hear it in his voice. Yeah. And Mac was good on that one. He's great. Did you you interviewed him on um, Hidden Experience? Right, I never once, and that's the really that's never broke my heart. I mean, that was the, I just wow. It seems so. It seemed like like oh yeah, Mike had him on. I would I would have I would have you know why I didn't have him on? This is pathetic. He didn't have Skype, and it was just like oh, I've had such good luck with Skype, and I've had such bad luck with phones. <sighs> you know, so yeah, I think I had him on live once with Paul. And then one time we did it by phone. Mm-hmm. Um, I have all and that the was audio. A, that was a month before he died. I think. If you look at the sidebar of my the left hand sidebar of my site, scroll down a little bit. There's an image of Mac, and then there's it says something like you know all of Mac's audio interviews. Well, the, the one from like right over yeah, his just nose. Is, and then and then there's a so all of his all I don't know what's going on now is where the links have dried up or something. But I tried to collect as many as I could, and and put them all on there. Yeah. So that's, that's the right, Paracast, and that's you, and that's Tim Benal, and so yeah, and a handful of others. Yeah, he was on a few. He was just getting there. Also, I had the feeling uh, he might have written one more UFO book and then dropped it. This stuff is such wonderful, you know, material for fiction, and it's it's so amazing how poorly it gets. I mean, how how 
No, he could have done a good, good how, job with it. I'm thinking of like the X Files. How, I mean, they're obviously mining the UFO literature. Oh, my God. and and that's the, why and I didn't like it because I'd see it and say, but, but they left so much out. I know, they that's just, my same thing too. It's did, like, did, oh, they, they could have done so, so much interesting. Yeah, so much it's more so much better than this. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I had problems with it. Yeah. And we got off the track. We were talking about you using hidden experience. Oh, it's therapy. The therapeutic tool, yeah, self-therapy. As well as, I would say, the, the first owl book, the blue owl book, the first one, was a form of self-therapy. I didn't realize it until afterwards, once it was published and like the dust settled a little bit and I was starting to work on I the think other all one. I think like, all the best artistic works like that, I, and I would call an artistic work, are self-therapy. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and almost any really decent piece of uh, literature or whatever is, is self-therapy for the author, yeah. I think. And the second book was, so the first book, so the premise of the first book was for me to get these ideas out. Mm-hmm. These these ideas were kind of roiling in my head and I, they, I, I hadn't articulated them in the formal process of putting in a book and organizing it. Like I, I was required to uh, uh, speculate and editorialize in a way that, that would formulate or like, like I could articulate the ideas. Mm-hmm. I, I was articulating the ideas that, that were welling up in these stories and I was, it's speculation. I don't have answers. But some of this, you know, so this patterns in these stories. And so I tried to, and doing that, that, that was hard work. And, and I, I feel like at the end of it, I came out of it a much calmer person. But one of the things I had to do in that first book, and I'm making little scissor things with my fingers right now, <laughs> is I had to snip, snip, snip down the, the uh, stories, right? Because some of you talk on the phone for six hours, someone's got an owl story. And then at the end, of, you know, you take notes and you record it and you call them back and there's 50 emails. And, and then in the book, it's like two paragraphs because you got to like eliminate everything else except. The, yeah, except the the, uh, the salient parts of the story that are going to make sense with your narrative. Exactly. Like I'm pushing forward an idea. I'm, I'm, I'm moving forward with an idea. And, right. and, and that broke my heart to not be able to tell these stories. So the second book, the premise of the second book was to tell those stories in all their weirdness and all their complexities. Mm-hmm. And I said this in both books. Um, Ann Streber, the wife of Whitley Streber, had a little, she called her BS detector. And she said, if a story's not weird, I don't trust it. You want to <laughs> know how to, if someone tells you a UFO story, if it's not weird, don't trust it. Yeah, that's that sounds like a corollary of Carla Turner's thing where all the, she said all the, all the, uh, Important part of the stories to me lies in the anomalous details. Yes. So to in the second book is just I I worked with an editor and her name was Suzanne Chancellor and she said do you really need to put that in there and I'm like yes it's, a, it's the whole premise of the book to put that in there <laughs> yeah, yes because all of a sudden it's like this chapter is getting really long Mike and I'm like well we got to put this in you know and it's, sometimes it was just a sentence or two but this weird detail after weird detail after weird detail and so that was the premise of the book was to take so there's 19 chapters in essence it's 19 short stories mm-hmm. one of them is 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 uh, Kenneth Arnold and his pet owl that's yeah. one of the shorter chap- chapters in the book and um. Uh, so these, and I, and it was so, it was a relief to me to get these, you know, to actually tell these long, complex stories. And that was a challenge. I mean, the stories are like all mixed up and yeah, like you got to tell it so you can follow it. Yeah. And, um, why, pardon? Why did you want to put out the book to, to 
emphasize the weirdness? No, because I felt so bad that I had to oh, edit oh, everything yeah. down so right, much right, in the first right. book. And I was like, oh my God, these, these, and it wasn't everyone. And you know, I remember couldn't... in the first book you were saying there was so much more to the story. But well, I we do don't... that. I did that all the time. I yeah. can't tell any story without saying, well, to really start, tell the story correctly, it would take, we'd have to sit here for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's like, I say that, I feel like, I can't have a conversation about this stuff without saying, well... Yeah, well, you can't get the richness of the, the extreme weirdness, the extreme, the high strangeness, or whatever you want to call it, to coin a phrase, um, in those little small snippets. You have to kind you of to, listen to, to the pu- whole thing. You have to publish a second book. And yeah. <laughs> and, and where I, I mean, I did, it was 19 chapters. I could have done 119 chapters because I've got, you know, those kind of, that went by. Yeah. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but... Yeah, um, not really. You, you got, uh, yesterday you said you got six owl emails. That doesn't mean they're all... Yeah, they, all, they, that doesn't they, mean that they could. I could do a full chapter on each one of those. I know, things, but, you, but you just have so many of them. And I, show, oh, I did show you my my files that only go back to like 2015. Yes. and I had to like, and that was extensive. That's more extensive than I can. I can't hold that in my mind. Right? Yeah, so yeah, it was on his computer. It was like just line after line after line after line of the of the titles is, of these titles are, of the emails. These are emails. And what I do hundreds is hundreds of every them. time I maybe thousands. Well it's less than a thousand, but more than but many hundreds. Yeah. Um but uh you know so I don't just usually have one email. I usually you know you go back and forth and thank you for this and oh one more question and oh here's right. something I forgot to tell you and so you know sometimes I've got email threads that are seventy pages long. Uh and I put them all in a document. I cut and paste each. Every time I do it, I drag it out and cut and paste. I have and those put it with people on Facebook Messenger. In fact, I should probably take some of these Facebook Messenger in exchanges and use them as notes. Well, you, but you have, I mean, yeah. So I and try emails, to formalize yeah. it a little bit and I, I cut and paste and drop it into a into a uh, word processing document. I'm using Pages, the, the Apple version. But yeah. Um, and then, and it's, so yeah. So it's not, it's not like I got, that's, you know, each one of those emails you're reading probably has that those little documents you saw scrolling by probably has at least five back and forth. Some of them, mm, many mm. dozens going back and forth of correspondence kind of thing. How can you forth. even be sitting here in L.A. and doing this and not answering all these? <laughs> well, I can't answer them all. I can't. I just can't. You know, and I feel terrible. And like I got a little thing where I say, "I will." I'm, it's bad. It's terrible. I go quick reply. Thanks for your note. You know, here's one point that I think is really interesting. Like, if I don't get back to you, you have permission to get back to me. And I have this little thing. I just type it out, and I've typed it out. I don't know how many times. And because I, and some of them are phenomenally interesting stories. And uh, do you see themes going through them, or is it just all over the map? Well, there's certainly themes going through it. Yeah, uh, one of them is Reiki therapy. Really? People are like, what do you do for a job? Oh, I'm a Reiki therapist. Hmm. That's like. And so the owl UFO Reiki therapy. So they have owl and UFO. They've got a fifty. I'm making this up. This is a statistic. We can't. I can't. I'm just doing this up. Fifty-fifty chance of being a Reiki therapist. And if they're not a Reiki therapist, they're doing something Reiki therapy like. Really? How's that for weird? I like you. Tell me what that means. You know. So. Yeah, you'd have to check up on what Reiki therapy. I don't even know what it is. I know it's it's some sort of it's a uh, Japanese. uh, energy work, yeah, yeah, where you don't actually touch the person. Okay. Some people, some Reiki therapists will touch a person, but you're putting your. It's not hands-on therapy; it's hands-off therapy. And Reiki therapist Russell Targ did some study on Reiki therapy. He said it's just as he did in his Russell Targ voice. He said it's just as effective as long distance. Mm. You can be on a telephone having Reiki therapy. One person can be in New York; the other person can be in L.A. It's just as effective as if. You were lying on the massage table in front of them. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So he's a, like, like figured. Like, so like what's going an on? Entanglement so, thing or something. And so, so I don't know if it's fifty percent. A, 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 it might be a more. significant percentage. A significant percentage that's worth noting that makes you sit up and say, "Oh, okay, oh, golly, it's the first thing you think crap. of." Yeah. So, um, I mean, I literally am at the point now when I talk to people, I kind of write. I have notes and I write Reiki therapy or write Reiki in the corner as I take notes and I like see what comes up. And then at the end, like, what do you do for work? It's like, oh, I'm a Reiki therapist. <laughs> and, uh, or, you know, actually some of people are straight up nurses, you know, so mm. like some sort of healing work, massage therapy, a lot of massage therapists, a lot of Reiki healers. A lot of I'm just, I'm just like, I think somebody else told me that besides you. Oh, it might've been me. Maybe well, I'm not the first person to notice this. That there's a lot of healers or people in the healing professions that have, um, paranormal, not just UFO, but paranormal type experiences. I, yeah, and at the same time, I mean, bankers and lawyers and yeah, and, they do and, too. And but there was ice cream salesmen. And yeah, stuff but like there that. was a you know a significant. I wish I knew who told me this. Maybe it was on one of the shows, but a significant um, subset of people in um, the, with paranormal experiences are you know nurses or healers or 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 shamans. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would make sense. That totally makes sense yeah. because your 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 antenna picks up more stuff. <laughs> yeah. If you're So if, in you know, if so you identify as that kind yeah. of kind of person. Yeah, there's a there's a woman in the second book named Denise Lin and she's an author and has written a lot of you know, they're sort of self-help books and feng shui books and and but at the same time she's she's been traveling the world and teaching and talking and meeting and I called her a shaman in the text. She was very quick to like when I had her read the, the, the essay was fine. You take that part. Yeah, I am not a shaman. You take that out. <laughs> and so I did. And I actually put a little, I said, you know, though she, you know, I, I basically said I called her a shaman and she told me to take it out. But her work is very shaman like, mm. you know, so she's helping people. She's using Reiki and intuitive skills and, and psychic skills to help people. And she's had UFO experience, close up UFO sighting. Yeah, that those those the all these things go the the guy um I'm editing now Charles with the port stuff um and the psychic questing and all that. He had early experiences when he was a kid. I was just editing today. He said that he that the George Hunt Williamson um book uh, uh the saucers speak subtitled um communication with like with, with UFOs or something by radio telegraphy. Anyways, a kid, he said he was a he was into uh, radio stuff. So they created a little radio, and he said he started um, sending Morse code, and he got Morse code back, and one of them was show. He sent a thing saying, please show yourself, and the Morse code, I think, said okay or something like that. He was sitting there with his friends in a, in a lab at school in England, schoolboys, you know, 12, 10, 12 years old, whatever it is, and he said a light dropped out of the cloud cover for about half a second, then shot back up into the clouds, and we all went, bah! we all got scared and ran. And that's there it is, isn't it? You know, like there's and then he's doing the support stuff later and a a seance and spiritualist things. Yeah, not really spiritualist, but in England it's called psychic questing. I'd never heard of this till I talked to Charles. But all this weird stuff. You talk to people, it's like, oh, I'm into uh, what would you say? Uh, uh, Well, Reiki therapy or something like that. Some new agey thing. Doesn't mean that every Reiki therapist is no, no, no. I've seen owls, but you know, somebody that has weird experiences. Or they're a highly creative type, or whatever. UFOs are always hooked into it. It's like this leet motif with well of strangeness. They could be totally into some other part of the weirdness, but there's a UFO component to it. It's like this. It's this weird theme that goes through a lot of people's weird experiences. 
um, and I, I wrote an essay a long time ago. It's like, what's wrong with the repeater phenomenon? There shouldn't be anything wrong with it because people used to be scared of it. Well, yeah, they would throw the if you were they would, was, throw, you would they throw it would out. Throw it's like, it oh, he's making it up now because like, no one could have two UFO sightings. Yeah, I remember being uh, Charles Hickson wrote about it about being he didn't want to admit it uh, in his book. Uh, what's that? UFO contact at Pas- Pascagoula that was um, Mendez and Hickson. Um, but yeah, he had like three more experiences, but he didn't really, he talked about it in the book, but I remember him, I think in the book saying, I don't really want to talk about this because it makes people think you're nuts. Well, Travis Walton yeah. says, you know, that people, you know, ask him at the conferences, like, have you had any other experiences? And he put, he says, well, if I've had any other experiences, I wouldn't tell you about them. <laughs> I had enough trouble with the one I'm not, if I had another experience, there's no way I would talk about it. And and he's very polite about it, and, and that's an interesting answer. Yeah. Because he could say no. <laughs> yeah, he could say no. And uh, he wants to say yes, but he just doesn't want to. I think he thinks he's under that impression that if he does do that, people are like, oh, okay, well, then we I can throw him that, in the trash the, now because he's nuts. I think the times have changed a little bit. He also, yeah. there's, there's, actually, I don't want to give away his. I don't his, think he realizes it, or he's locked into that time frame. I don't think, I don't want to give away his his shtick in a way, but he when people often will ask, and I've seen him do it a few times where people come up to the microphone at the end of his talks and ask questions like, do you have any psychic skills? And he would say, I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty good. <laughs> so, so uh, um, I've never said the le- one, the one time I met with him for an any length of time was probably, it was during the annular eclipse in Albuquerque. I don't know when that was seven, eight years ago, quite a while ago. Um, and the only, and he was still on his, skeptics are treating me like crap thing um i think he's moved beyond that i think it's i think times have changed yeah so i think he's but i mean the tr- like I he think was the tr- so mad that people would not believe him i think he's gotten to the point where he doesn't care or he's he's got so much he's booked so much now he doesn't really care and what I, people I don't say think it's i think he would if he like if you had a i don't think i he, i he believe he believes picked, his story he would not have picked the life that he has of yeah, exactly from ufo conference to yeah, UFO yeah. conference. i i believe he believes what happened to him that's what oh i certainly do too and and i think that i, I think did. the trauma was less the event yeah. And more the, I, I'm, the I, aftermath. I'm, I'm, I'm have no. This is just a sense because I certainly don't know. But yes, the event certainly sounds traumatic. But his scrutiny and and the way he was treated by the the press and everything like that is has been equally as tra- traumatizing. Yeah. Um, what else was I going to say? Oh. Uh, when I was in Roswell, I had a, a slightly contentious um, discussion. Of, we don't have to go much longer. We're both getting a little tired. Hour and a quarter is good. Oh, well, look, I'm, I got, I'm, I'm good. Okay. I was rubbing my eye. And he, he, I'm going to go get some coffee, and you're staying up and talking yeah. about this. Um, well, it's 11 o'clock. I could, I could. We, uh, what was I saying about Travis? Oh, we were talking about him um, last year in Roswell. I had Nick Redfern, Peter Robbins. Oh, God. There were so many. There was like five people in that room. People that were speakers, etc. At the Miles Lewis, my friend was there, and Travis was speaking at you know at that too. So I said, Peter, what do you think happened to Travis? He said, I think he was zapped into a UFO and taken away for a week, just like he said. And I said, but Peter, there's no proof of that besides what Travis says. And he got he's like, but but that's what he said. Like you know, well, where was he? I said, I don't know where he was. I wasn't with him. He says, well, there was other witnesses. I said, there were other witnesses to him getting zapped. There weren't witnesses to where he went during that time. 
So we have no idea what happened to him. He could have been taken somewhere or he could have wandered around in a daze for a few days. Well, how could he survive in the winter? There was a guy that survived in Maine. He was hiding out for years. And when he got cold, he would get up at night and just walk around to keep his body temperature up. So it's not inconceivable. But the thing is, what I, my point was, I don't think there's a mistake of taking that his story or any of these stories objectively, literally. I think that closes a door of possibility. And it, when I say something like that, people will say, oh, you're just trying to explain it away. You're, 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 a, you're skeptical about it. It's like, no, 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 no. Well, so I'm looking for other doors of understanding to what happened to somebody um, while still saying, look, I believe you believe your story, but I want to find out why you believe your story, what happened afterwards, what happened before, how did you react to it? How did your family react to it? I want to know. Mm -hmm. I want to know the entire spectrum of what's going on, not just that he was taken somewhere by aliens. Like I don't. But you, that's but you the asked most... a question of Peter, and he said, "You asked, you know, what do you think happened?" And Peter said, "You know, in essence, I stand by Travis's yeah. testimony." Yeah, and I stand by Travis's testimony too, but I, I think I should have the freedom to question. Oh yeah, yeah. Happen. I mean, it's like I'm just like I don't say Travis, you're a liar. I never said that, and I don't think it. Yeah. But if I'm standing there with him after his friends took off, I don't know what's going on. He may be lying on the ground. Well, they came back and he was gone, but he could have just walked off. To play devil's advocate, or whatever. I mean, I'm so yeah, that's what I was doing with Peter was a kind of a devil's advocate. Well, I'm not sure what I've got. I'm using the wrong term, but. I want um, to open so, the door up rather than close it by either saying that didn't happen or this is what it is. Sure. It's like you, you got to look at the mystery from every little angle you can. But um, It's my personality. I mean, yeah, it's just so, the way I but do he was So the, my understanding is the, the visual of him getting zapped looked pretty traumatic. Yes. It wasn't like he just kind of crumbled it. Like he got thrown across yes. the forest floor. Yeah, yeah. And it was something that looked like he was... And everyone in the car thought he was dead. Yes. And they... And they away. thought they could be dead, so they took off. And then they came back within yeah. within. I, I was a short period of time. I can't yeah. remember. It was an hour or less than that. But they went right back. They drove away and like, what are we doing? We got to go back. And they went back and they looked for him. He wasn't there. Yeah. And so either got taken somewhere or he wandered off. If he wandered off, why would he create the? I mean, yes, there's. He didn't create a story. It was it's his memory of what happened. Okay. What's more probable? I mean, whatever we're talking about, it we're talking about an improbable. I'm, I'm not. Maybe I'm looking to keep the to keep the uh, to to not collapse the waveform until it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, that's my point of view. Yeah, I, I guess we could say, look, he got taken somewhere. Yeah, that that's a literal interpretation, exactly what he says, and I'm and he. I'm, that's what he. That's what he believes happened to him, and that's how he remembers it, and it is literal to him. And that, so I I remember. Fighting, fighting, fighting. I had this experience in a tent, and I was in a tent. I was with a friend, and we both woke up screaming, and she was, like, freaked out, and I was freaked out, and it was like this – what the term I use is synthetic fear. It was, like, so scary. It was beyond anything imaginable. I've camped out. I've had – I mean, I've camped out in Grizzly. I've never felt anything like this. She describes it the same exact way. Both of us woke up screaming, mm -hmm. and uh, then, poof, it just faded away. And we were asleep. Yeah. The next thing I know, I'm floating. I float up through the top of the tent. I'm in this white realm. And then the next morning, there's all this stuff where we both saw a, uh, a, a what like looked like a mandala, a floating mandala in the same spot in the tent. 
and and uh, well, mandala is a symbol that's in one of the symbology books you have in yes. the house here. So, yeah. uh, so it was like we were looking at a at an ancient archetypal symbol that was yeah. floating the, the, in the tent, and uh, and then I had a big scratch from one shoulder to the other that was looked like a looked like a been cut by a cat claw or a rose thorn. But when you looked at it really closely, it was like little fluid filled blisters and i was like you know what can what happened i'm like why is this, this is so weird and i'm like immersed in the ufo stuff yeah and i had a guy just go dude you were abducted and that was really helpful in yeah. a way to yeah. just be like what are you how stupid can you be you know yeah. so well, well it gives you something to it gives you something to it gives you a key into or uh a way to start unpacking whatever the hell it was under the framework of a UFO abduction. Right, that's what I mean. That I know there's a UFO. To... No, I never saw a UFO. The first thing I did was got up in the morning. I walked around looking for like a burn mark in the grass, and there was nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that doesn't, you know, who knows? I mean, this is like we're. That doesn't mean you know, who knows? I mean, was there a physical UFO? Was it all like etheric? Was it? Well, something was physical. You had a scratch. Oh, we had a scratch. Yes, the scratch healed up very quickly, and then it, very interestingly, both uh, uh, Natasha and I were like claim to be like ufo researchers and, and we never took a picture of it yeah yeah like it would washed off within a few days it was gone and as soon as it was gone we both went ah, we should have taken a picture of it yeah so same thing so happened to me i saw something broad daylight right in a uh, quarter mile away from me clear as day what was it uh it was a shape that looked like a oh, six-pointed right. that's right uh, that, that thing a shiny black that's near the airport yeah near the airport at santa barbara and i said huh that's interesting and i got in my car and said i guess i gotta i gotta get home I could have driven over there in five minutes. Yeah. And you probably had a camera with a phone with a camera. Or... At that point, I had a phone that had a really crap. It was one of those old flip phones oh, yeah, that had yeah. a really bad camera yeah. in it. So I guess I could have taken a picture of it. But I didn't even think to do that. I just said, I got to go. And I left. Isn't and then that... I got home. The next day I said, what, 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 what's wrong with me? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was this. I don't know. It's so part Ray, of this Ray Hernandez self-negating nature of the phenomenon. Just does that. Ray Hernandez has heard the dog barking, you know, downstairs, and got to the top of the stairs and looked down the stairs, and there's the dog barking, and in the room is this giant, undulating dome of a translucent, glowing jellyfish filling yeah. up the entire living room. Who's Ray Hernandez? If Ray, Ray Hernandez is the fellow who started an organization called Free, and it's now called the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Consciousness Research, or something. Right, right. And um, and this was the this was the kind of the and the dog was healed. The dog was very sick in the next, but it was healed later. But so so he looks at the giant glowing jellyfish and the dog. This is the thing it. that kicked off his like he didn't care about this at all, and then suddenly and this suddenly happens he in has his house. A big giant glowing jellyfish in his living room in the middle of the night. It was in the morning. I think it was daylight. Oh, okay. And he walked back to his room and went, huh. And he went right, laid down and went, laid back to bed. And, he, he bathed, and then he said, <laughs> huh, like, that's interesting. A glowing then, jellyfish lays, in the living then, room. But he laid there for about an hour and then all of a sudden it was like this, what? Holy yeah. shit. Like, what? <laughs> I think he, I think he, he's, he's very funny the way he tells it. And he gets up and he runs he's back He's on uh, Coast tomorrow night with Nap. It'll be good. Yeah, George Nap will be a great. Because he just came out with a big, fat 800-page book. I came out with a 400-page book and... And, and you I thought that was too long, and that was too long. So this is doubly long, and I'm I just and it's I just I I I'm aware now of just like the marketing and just how people read and 
a little, I mean, oh, 400. no, nobody wants to read more than about 200 pages. Yeah. So 250 are pushing there's it. There's a sort of, and it's easy to make fun of, right? They're like, oh, like the publisher says, oh, let's keep this around 250 pages. And um, They always do that because more people will read it. Yes, and there's something you can put to be out your own more, type, make two books, you know, yeah, that are, you yeah. know, so, but. Um, oh, a lot of people have had this problem. Yeah. So I'm. I was just like, it was, but it's a very academic. You treatment. did. You did the second book. I did. And it's 280 pages. So it's, I still even broke my rule because it's a little over 250 pages. So yeah. it's actually <laughs> closer to 290 pages. But if you take the index out, it works to about 280. Well, um, part of the reason of doing this is just to codify it in a place where it's there and it's living and that people can look at and people have access to. Um, it's it's it's. You are creating a transcendental object that can be used by other people by creating this book that has information encoded in it. And 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 I'm also getting a lot of mail for people that are saying, thank you for writing your book. It really resonated strongly with me. It feels great to get that. Yeah. That's very yeah. rewarding. That's yeah. very rewarding. And I'm also getting books, a lot of letters where, you know, as I was reading your book, uh, this owl landed on the branch outside my window kind of things. So I get that a lot. Yeah. And certainly owls land on branch outside of, outside of windows. It's not... That's not impossible, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but, but the point was it was happening when they was reading the book, and maybe that's significant for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. The first thing I thought of just now when you said that was the the uh, the Joe Nickell's explanation of Kelly Hopkins Village as giant barn owls, I think. Yeah. Which I thought was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. I agree. I mean, especially you would, it's, you know, a barn owl can be spooky and can surprise you. But you can't, but you you can't, can't shoot you can't, at it repeatedly and have it have the... Make a, a metallic pinging noise and yeah. fall over backwards, and then get up and start walking again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, um, oh, there was one thing it was going to say. Um, this is backpedaling way back. Where, oh, backpedal all, all you like. So there was a point where we were talking about uh, the Reiki healers and like how. Yes, like, yes. And, I'm and sorry, we got off of stuff. that. So um, the people who have the so, and I put this in the second book. What and there's uh, Jim Mars wrote a book about the first group of military trained remote viewers and it was somehow it got shelved and and, it, and he republished it a decade later mm -hmm. or maybe even more than that so um but that book in that i he, i kind of said you know like wow you know like joe mcmonagle has a ufo con like close-up ufo sighting and then uh, lynn buchanan has a close-up ufo sighting before i could finish that he's like mike mike i interviewed him this is it's on it's on my site he's like I said, the, the implication is that some of these people are, are UFO abductees. He's like, I talked to them. I was very involved when I did that book. They all are. They've all had that experience. Mm -hmm. And then there's a there's a YouTube video of Jacques mm -hmm. Vallée. And he said, you know, I was called in by the, the SRI. The oh, was that thing about him standing on the roof looking for UFOs while they were testing Geller? or, or, or um, uh, Oh, no, that's, that's uh, Robert Monroe. Okay. I think that's Robert Monroe. Or no, it wasn't, wasn't Geller. It was uh, uh, Joe McMonagall or something. No, no, the first guy, uh, Ingo Swan. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. But continue with the thing about the So, uh, you know, the people who, the first generation of military-trained remote viewers, and and uh, Jacques Pellet said, you know, I was called in because of my UFO experience because they recognized that all of these people have had what we would call UFO contact experiences. That's pretty weird to me. Yeah, well, this is what I was talking about before, that anybody that's involved in some of this weird stuff, especially uh, any other paranormal stuff, and I guess especially psychic stuff, they have a history of UFO 
Not all. I don't think every psychic has. A Not every, but, but it's but, it's but, a high percentage. Yes, and it, that's one of the it's, questions. It's even, almost normal for them. And even on the U, even on the MUFON forms, I got the the someone sent me the MUFON forms. I can't say who, but uh, the little forms that you would take to the the that the UFO or MUFON uh, field investigator forms. Yeah, and right on there it says, any psychic experiences afterwards how's your psychic how's your psychic abilities changed i'm paraphrasing from memory and i think there's another one it says has your religion or spirituality changed when which was, was very interesting when were those made, added i wonder probably after you talked about it and ranted about it on on, on radio mysterio <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it, they must... see, i remember you said it at one point and i was like oh this is testable like let's yeah. look at the form you know yeah and it's there which so they recognize it you know big stodgy institution that uh, yeah, I'm thinking that they may have had some uh, suggestions from somewhere well, besides was, just the rank was, and file. I think this was before. Uh, I'm I'm thinking that like there was maybe a Bigelow type influence. Like I think you should put that stuff on there. There certainly may have been. Yeah, because we'd like to know that, and you'd probably like to know that too. And it's undeniable part of the experience. Yeah. And I'm sorry if you think it's not respectable, but that should be in there. And yeah, so. What's very common for it's, it's, I for think it's people, changing very quickly now. When you ask someone, you know, what were you doing or thinking right before your UFO sighting? You know what they'll say? I was thinking, I want to see a UFO. Mm. That's very common. Yeah, hence Jeff Ritzman's thing about going and sitting in the in the in a quiet place, you know, by yourself for a few nights in a row. Yeah, I did that, and I had something happen recently. Oh, really? It's it, it was so subtle and stupid, though, and it probably could be explained away. For three nights when I was uh, house-sitting for a friend, they had a beautiful backyard, a view of the mountains in Santa Barbara, and they had like a meditation platform that was up above the garden. In fact, if you stepped off the edge of it, you'd probably break your leg. It's like 12 feet up off the ground. It's about about the size of the bed Mm -hmm. there, maybe half the size of the bed. You can just lie there. There's this nice straw mat. You look straight up in the sky. But I sat there doing what Jeff said. Just think about why you're doing what you're doing, what you've thought thought about up to now, thinking about what it is, mm-hmm. what you might like to experience, and be open minded about it. Nothing, nothing, nothing for three nights. And the last night I was there, and then I went away for a day to do to go see ELO and see Josh yeah. Cutchin. And I came back, and I was sitting like instead of lying on the thing and looking up in the sky because Jeff's always saying, "I always stuff is like always right, like straight above me." A lot of people say that, mm-hmm. so I was lying down so I could look straight up. Um, and this just may be something that, that a, prop, a property of sound of, of, of an insect, but I was sitting there like this and I heard just like, you know, with my hands on my f- knees like this with my eyes closed and I hear a very high pitched insect noise. Like I can't even make the noise with my mouth. It was just like, but it was like right at the edge of hearing so high pitched. And I said, huh, I wonder what that is. And I turned my head and the sound stopped. So I turned my head back this way and looked down again. And the sound was about, what's this, 90 degrees? It wasn't 90 degrees in my ear. It was like another 45 degrees away back behind me. So I turned my head like this and look at it again and it stops. And then I start getting freaked out. It's like, how does it know I'm turning my head? And I tried it. And so after about 20 minutes, I started doing an experiment. I would turn my head ever so slightly. And when I got right about, you know, right about like here, the sound would disappear. I'd go back here and I could hear it again. And it was really weird. I could only hear it when it was 
something like 20, 30 degrees behind, perpendicularly out from me. I could hear it behind me. I could hear it turn my head over here. I could hear it over here. But as soon as I went here, boop, it would be gone. Did you ever see anything? I saw nothing. I looked around. I had my glasses on. I looked around. I didn't see anything. All I heard was this very strange noise. I started looking up online. It's like, is, is there an insect or some or a frequency that only can be heard behind your head? And is there? I couldn't find okay, anything. That doesn't mean that there isn't. But yeah. yeah, that's very interesting. So I, it's, so that sounds like the kind of trickstery kind of thing that that. If I've I went out there, exactly yeah, thing, if I went out there the next night, there might have been a light or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I couldn't stay another night. Although I did, I saw, I heard a noise and I looked down and I saw this white thing down below me. I went, Rah! it was one of the the dogs. Yeah, <laughs> it had come out and been so quiet, I didn't hear it. But that really, that like, I almost jumped. I mean, I did jump. So I was lying out under the stars in the Tetons. This is a bunch of years ago, with a friend and um, lying on our backs on a beautiful, clear. Rocky Mountain night and trillions and trillions of stars and you could see these little satellites going across and my friend said so I'll prep this by saying I used to work in advertising and I worked on the My Little Pony campaign <laughs> and the, so that so every My Little Pony c- commercial begins with five seconds of animation yep. or did in the 1980s it's 10 seconds of animation so remaining 20 seconds 15 of that was what's called jingle driven where it was all just little kids playing with little my little pony song my little pony dream castle you, and <clears throat> there was a little checklist they had to have the people combing the pony's hair and the ponies <coughs> sorry I'm, and you had to and the, and then there was called an emotional response you had to include the emotional response so at the end of the commercial before it said you know my little pony and my little pony dream castle each sold separately by hasbro that was the five seconds at the end. Mm-hmm. But before that, the last thing was a little girl had to take the pony in her hand and kiss it and say, I love you, my little pony, and kiss it. So I was under the stars there, and there's this little, and we're like, oh, look at that little satellite. And, that's, and then my friend goes, well, that one looks kind of weird. And I look, I looked up at it, and it did look like it didn't follow quite the same trajectory. It had a different field than the satellites. And I went, I love you, my little UFO. Right at that moment, it went boom and flashed this like kind of flash, like a flashbulb flash. Uh-huh. It was like bright enough to, and both of us went, do it again, do it again. And it did it again. And it was so funny. It was so yeah. stupid and funny and playful. <laughs> and and uh, it could have, I mean, so people would say, well, they have the, the, the satellites have these big, uh, you know, reflective, uh, iridium a, satellites do that, but it's not a big flash. It just gives you kind of a, vi- a bright light, and it's only like within an hour after sunset. This it wasn't happen. within an hour after sunset. Okay, so it was right after sunset. But it only does it once. Any and basically, it, to saying "I love you, my little UFO." Oh, of course not. Okay. And it wouldn't have flashed like that. It would just got a little brighter for okay. a little while. And you can't see them really. All you this, see is the flash. It's called an iridium flash, I think. Yes, and the iridium is the name of the the the, the communication satellite. Okay. And they have big uh, panels, that, and they happen to be just in the type of orbit. You can go online and look up a li- iridium flash, and it'll tell you where you are, when the next one is going to be, and exactly where it's going to be. I used to freak friends out, and it's like, there's going to be a meteorite at 5.02, or we'd be standing there. I'd know it's like, look over there right now. There's going to be a flash, and there'd be this in the sky, and they'd go, whoa, how'd you know that? Ah. It's because it's it's predictable because they're satellites, but, but yes. not twice and not like a. You you said it's more like a flight. This was it's this very subtle. Like, this felt like a this felt like a 
classic old flash bulb. Yeah, no, it, they don't look like that at all. It was all. like bright enough that it would almost burn your retina. No, no, bit. these are not like that. They're just kind of like, if you don't know they're there, you, if you're not looking for them, you don't really see them. If you're not looking right at where they are, you wouldn't really know. Okay, and so, yeah, so we could follow it. little, Just a little glowing dot sort of tracing along the sky, just like any other satellite at yeah. an hour after sunset. Yeah. And But when I said, I love you, my little UFO, <laughs> boom. <laughs> so... <laughs> yep. yep. Um, uh, 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 psychic, uh, psych- psychological emergency sold separately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. But yeah. So that was so funny and so playful, and there's not a. It was so. <laughs> there was no gloom and doom associated with that one. So. Well, what do you think about um um? experiences of people do they reflect their personality or does it doesn't like you know if somebody's basically you know into being scared or they have psychological problems or they're very you know unstable or whatever negative. to begin with just negative, negative. i know right what you're saying like yeah if they're a negative, negative person do, they, do you is that an actual pattern or do you think there's a friend of mine and she said it like that's shitty like right you don't want to like say oh you're a negative person that's why you're having negative experiences that's like crappy what a cop out you know like she said sometimes you're just shit out of luck (laughs) she's an experiencer and i thought like you know that's as good a way to sum it up because you know uh there's other researchers out there leo sprinkle for one he's one that's a real proponent of like you it's reflecting back at you what you what you put into it right and i'm sure you could find that in the literature i don't think any of these are hard and fast rules but Shit out of luck might be a hard, fast, and roll. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but um, yeah. So I, that one, that one comes up all the time, and I'm I just out of sheer politeness. I don't want to say I don't want to say. Oh, you had a bad experience because you're you're a downer. You know, you've got a negative vibe to you, and so that's why you you're. Well, they may point. not be that way. I mean, it just may be their attitude towards it, and. You know, they may be happy in all the other parts of their life, but this is just too upsetting, so they get upset by it. Oh, it, yeah. And I, I mean, can people's experience change where they just say, "Look, I'm like you said, I'm I'm tired of being scared of it." Does it automatically become not so scary? Well, and a lot of people like go through a little. I'm sure there's variations in it, but you know, you are confronted with these horrible nightmarish traumatic let's use the word trauma you're confronted with something traumatic Mm -hmm. a ufo abduction thing and it may be partially it may be totally amnesia maybe just buried memories but it's still traumatic and that trauma that unremembered trauma is going to have yeah there's normal stuff that has nothing to do with this that people bury the memories on yeah and then traumatic memories and then (laughs) that's what the rock opera tommy is based on yeah (laughs) and uh so those uh and if if through hard work people transcend that and then actually come out the other side i don't so another thing spiritual awakening is something i get all the time like oh mm. you know this and that happened then i had a spiritual awakening i don't really know what that means right that's, that's i think like, it means something different for everybody it absolutely means something different for everyone but what it implies is that you you changed yeah. you had an oh you had a your 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 psyche or your psychology or your outlook on life or whatever went through some sort of or your change. outlook on reality or your, you, yes. know, you might be just as grumpy after a spiritual awakening <laughs> but you can but you might have a different 
thing yep. of reality, of reason, of re, you know, like a different definition but of dude, reality. dude, how can you be depressed after a spiritual awakening? Dude? Well, you sure could. I mean, you could because there's something called the, 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 there's a coin, a term coined by, I don't know who coined it, but there's a term used by a researcher. Her name is Suzanne Gordon, and she does um, uh, near-death experience research. And she's this, like, there's a, th- you come up back from a near-death experience, it's normal to get depressed. Yeah. Right? You go you go for a good vacation, you come back and it's it's normal to get depressed, right? Mm-hmm, you have a very mm-hmm. powerful life affirming experience. That stuff I did where I taught in the outdoor stuff. You know, you'd go out for thirty days and you'd come back and you would you'd, the part of it was going through a lull of depression. No, not no. like clinical depression, but no, like no, but you're kinda like you're on a high and now you're not on that high anymore. Yeah, and you'd you like to this, be back on it. Yeah. And, and um so I mean that was actually one of the things that happened where people when they first the three D movie Avatar People would like there was like post avatar depression where people mm. would like be so like enraptured by this visionary experience and they'd come you know walk out they'd be some shitty mall in New Jersey and like, <laughs> oh crap you know and then they'd get all depressed so there was like so yes you can have a have a so yes and it was so the term she used to describe people this is the term she used for uh, near death experience was the trauma of enlightenment. Mm, yeah, and I think that could you could paste that right over some UFO cases, UFO contact cases, the trauma of enlightenment. I mean, you see a UFO, right? You see a, something that everyone, I guess the New York Times has changed their tunes a little bit, but uh, recently, but so that the, the consensus reality says it's not there. Yeah, and they they, but the um, you know the popular view is it's not there, and if you well, see the, it, there's something wrong with you, and I think the pop, I mean, but popular used to be the the, 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 the when you do the statistics, it's like sixty percent of the people, seventy five percent of the people. The way you phrase the question changes a little bit. Um, you know, do you believe in UFOs? Is mm-hmm. different than do you believe in life on other planets? Is different, but yes, sixty five, sixty to seventy five percent of the people believe in UFOs and life on other planets. Whether that's the source, but I mean, so, but that's not how. You're chastised by you know bosses and schools and and yeah, it's more the subtle. New York Times and stuff like that. So the so the controlling reality is saying it doesn't exist. But every UFO abductee, I've t- or excuse me, every UFO witness I've talked to has this kind of like it is a period of cognitive dissonance. Yes, where they're like like holy crap, I'm being lied to. Yeah, and with and that's why I think a lot of UFO experiencers are very open to. To, to getting lost in conspiracy, what do you, what would you call it? Like, well, you're the La Brea Tar Pits right here. You know, like that's like the instead of the, the mastodons getting stuck in it. You know, it's like the the UFO abductee stepping into the the tar of conspiracy theory because they're already yeah, because open they're to the fact. yeah because their their reality's been turned upside down. If their reality been turned upside down and that the the person that was telling them what was going on didn't include this in that reality, there must be something wrong with yeah. what they're telling them. And then that just you go right down the line. But unfortunately they go conspiracy. whoop all the way over to it's 100 100% lies. Yeah. Instead of, you know, no just the part they're telling you and selected other things that keep you from, you know. Oh, there, I'm sure there's whatever. all kinds of lies out there and all yeah. kinds of conspiracies that yeah. are taking place. Oh, no, there definitely are. It's just that they they get to the point where it's like, wow, my life has totally changed. Um, everything I know is a lie. Everything I know is wrong, so that, you know, that's going to be the lens of everything from now on. Um, because they you know, maybe that's part of what somebody should be doing for the therapy. It's like, look, let's integrate this into your life so that everything doesn't look like a horror show. Yes, and that, and I think that's the, the therapists are are there to. I mean, Yvonne Smith is a very compassionate therapist, and she did. All, I mean, that was her. That's her. She did 
I think I'm, I'm do, uh, doing this from memory now, but I mean, she was a practicing therapist before she got into the UFO context stuff. So she was doing straight up therapy for families and, and, and I, so I'm, I, I, I don't know exactly, but she was, a, she's a, yeah, she's got two or three different, you know, um, certificates yeah. on, uh, for, for, uh, as a mental health professional. Yeah. I don't think she's a, she doesn't have, she's not a psychologist, psychiatrist, but she's certainly, she's not a doctor, yeah. Yeah, but she's certainly a uh, um, what's that called? Lights, licensed um, social worker, licensed, yeah. whatever it is. That, uh, I've got three or four friends that have that license, and they're practicing therapists now. Yeah. Not not UFO stuff, but just normal stuff. Um, I had to ask them if anybody's come in with those questions. It'd be kind of interesting. With see the how they do of... with um, contact or or UFO experience or anomalous experience questions. I suspect a lot of people. I mean, you know, so it's so well, they do because Stanislav Grov used to have the um, the what was it called the Spiritual Emergency Network. Yes, that was actually his coined by his wife. Spiritual Emergency was coined by his wife, uh, Christina Grof. Uh huh. Yeah, I had a friend that actually contacted them and 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 uh, got some assistance from them sometime in the nineties. He had a, it was a bad trip experience actually. Where his reality just didn't work for a while, and he just he had to talk to somebody about it, and it took a few months, but he calmed down, uh, not calmed down, but he was able to integrate that experience back into his, mm-hmm. yeah. And it took a while, but I, I think it's in in a way it was the same as having you know these experiences we're talking about. They're traumatic, mm-hmm. psychologically traumatic. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think that. This is kind of where I have a break with um, uh, the skeptical crowd about, like, you know, these people are being told that it's UFOs and being told and it's 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 bad and it might it's probably something very mundane and it's like no, you can't. I don't think you can tell people. You can't see from their point of view what they went through. All you can do is have them come to some kind of peace with it by honoring what their view of it is and helping them deal with that not by telling them either one hey it's ufos and you've been chosen or two no you're crazy and this has nothing to do with ufos and that's not what should be going on and it sounds like at least some or maybe most of the therapists you've talked to i think that they think that's what they're doing it's like let, let's help people deal with it not not explain it to them or anything well i mean i mean yes they're they're because I think they do have a definite view of what's going on because some of them write books about it. But I think some of the more quiet ones are just kind of like, let's let them get through this and send them off so they can continue their lives with this traumatic experience and integrate it. Sure. Oh, I'm sure that's the, that's the, everyone, every therapist is, even Bud Hopkins, who was not a therapist, and even Dave Jacobs, who's not a therapist, I think was recognized that, that looking into this can be, can be a release. So he was, he's not a therapist. No, and Bud Hopkins was not a therapist. No, and um, uh, and so yes, you're you're in in. Uh, I think and uh, Mary Rodwell was a midwife. Mm. So so there's people coming out from all different angles. There's mm. a fellow Joe Lules who I consider very, and he's a he's I a remember trained, that I remember that name. He's a wonderful guy. He's a wonderful guy to talk to. He's a, he's a in Texas and he speaks Spanish, and he accompanied. John Mack to South America when John Mack was doing his research on on uh, shamans for Passport to the Cosmos. And then afterwards, he I think he was already involved in the UFO circles at that point and, and had been... Um, but he's now doing hypnotherapy. He is not a licensed therapist, though he's a very compassionate person. 
So I've got friends that aren't therapists at all. One, one of my friends sat with a schizophrenic friend of his for one entire evening, all through the evening till the sun came up. Uh, I don't think he had any training. But what he did is he sat with him and he said, what makes you think that? Can you know? Let's look at it from this angle, because um, you know he was kind of like you trying know, to talk him down. Yeah, yeah. He basically talked him off of you know. He's like, can can you see what you're saying here? Does that make sense? And not like you're wrong or anything like that. He just said, let's look at this from another yeah. angle. Let's try this one. And the guy was a friend of his, so he trusted him. And he said, by the end of the night, the guy was kind of cured of his schizophrenia just well, by sitting there and talking, doing it, the talking therapy yeah. with him. So schizophrenia, like it may have been. He, so yeah, I can't speak to. He, I think he was diagnosed schizophrenic, yeah. but yeah, not not like severely well, psychotically schizophrenic. I think just listening and being compassionate has an enormous amount of power. Yeah. So for even if you somebody has a what most people would say a delusional view of what happened to them, it's like the, I don't think the point is to disabuse them of their delusions, quote unquote, which is a bad word, but to to like I said, just help them integrate it mm-hmm. so that they're not thinking everything's a conspiracy or everybody's after them or you know thinking about it 95% of the time and thinking they're going crazy yeah. stuff like that because not everybody's going to sit there and put a blog up and start dealing with it that way some people need to talk to, and you did it too talk to other people but yeah. oh I, that was the part of the, the blog was and that was part of the initial podcasts you can listen to the early podcasts you can hear it in my voice I was I was desperate for help mm. And I was using the podcast. Like, how do I talk to this person? I just guess I could call him up and interview him and tell him it's a podcast. And it was, you know, <laughs> it was a little, I mean, at times it was like, yeah. So I mean, like, I, am I being too selfish here? Well, at least oh, I'm I doing was, a show. I was totally selfish, you know? So yeah. This show is selfish as hell. I've said it many yeah. times. Yeah. I'm not doing this show for other people. The fact that other people listen to it and like it makes me very happy. Yeah. But yeah. I'm not doing it to make people happy. I'm doing it so I can talk to you and I can talk to everybody that's on the show and find some kind of understanding for myself. How, any closer to a deeper understanding? Yeah, a little. I'm a little less... Um, I'm turning into the kind of person I wanted to be, which is truly non-dogmatic. I, that's, that's my goal the whole mm-hmm. time. And I always think, oh, I'm going too much into a believer. Oh, I'm being too much of a skeptic. But the fact that I'm crossing that line... Well, you can dance back and forth in that line. I I'm cross just... that line quite a lot. And then I get to the point where I think... I get pissed when somebody tells me that I'm not thinking the, about something in the right way. I'm not 10 years oh, wait, old. Wait, hold it. You're not thinking about that right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a naive view or that is a stupid view or that is a um, believer of the view or you're too skeptical, you know. And when I hear those things, I'm kind of like, I, I get to the point where it's like, no, I'm not. You know what? I know what my discernment level is and I'm actually okay with it. Yeah. I'm still... I'm still curious about things, yeah, like, and I and I will I will flip things constantly. I mean, it, this is a, I think it's a Buddhist technique. You pull something in the other direction to show that something is too far in one direction, whether you agree with it or not. Because mm-hmm. I'm constantly pulling back and forth across that line. I'm doing that on the show all the time, and and the fact that I can talk to you and do that and you don't get offended because we know each other, it's that. Well, that, I did that. that in the that's useful session. to me. Yeah, you know, I did it right in. I was in hypnosis. I was under hypnosis, and I was like, no way. Doesn't couldn't happen. This isn't real. <laughs> and here I am, like explaining, like you know, like all this like flipped out stuff about. I mean, the door is the most 
that's the most mundane stuff. But I mean, just like, and I'm, I'm it's not mundane. That what the, that part was well compared to the other stuff that I told you. The other stuff is crazy, but the to, the, <laughs> yeah, to, so the other stuff is crazy. Fair, you know, uh, it's crazy sounding, but the 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 door thing. That's a wonderful little metaphor. Yeah, it's a great metaphor of you know, the way you explain it. It's like it's just a door, but what's on the other side is infinity. Um, and you know, what's your metaphor for what that door is doing? You know, well, there's a there's a there's an owl pin. There's on an owl it. thumbtacked, an owl yeah. image thumbtacked <laughs> on the door. That's what the owl. That's that's just a door. The owl, the image isn't important. It's just a symbol. Yeah. And that that's your i was talking about you know make your own key in your own lock that's your that's your um that's your key in your you know the the the, the lock or, or the lock and the key are both the owl or the aspects of it i think for you mm-hmm. and for the other people that are but especially for you it's become your well, kind of lead my, motif it's, it's your my, i mean it's, it's your doorway just, i can't even eat a croissant without seeing an owl you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, i'm serious i was like i get it all the time i'm just like it's like Oh my God! There's a, the living room in the house I'm living at is like there's there's like it's knotty pine, mm-hmm. and there's little like yeah. little knots. <laughs> you see like, them everywhere. He's like, he's like, oh, I'll stare at the wall this way, and I go, there's that looks like an owl. There's three hundred owls yeah, on the so There's like got the whole wall, the whole west wall. <laughs> They're all, all staring, staring at me. At me. <laughs> yeah, so that's sort of what it's like at this point, you know. Um, wake up in the I middle mean, of the see, night and really freak out. Yeah, where did I? What there was like. I'm waiting for something to happen here while you're sleeping here, but I guess it doesn't follow. It doesn't you. work like that. I don't think so. Because yeah, yeah, sometimes I've talked about that on the show the the contagion factor when something uh, somebody has something going on around them, and so, uh, the Skinwalker people talked about this, where the the if you you somebody can be a vector for it, like somebody that has it has the thing happen to them, and then they meet somebody else or stay with them, and then that starts happening to them. The way I see it is like the the like the campfire story like a good campfire story is just a story and you're left with like an impression and a sense you know that's that might be all we get is the impression and sense mm-hmm. like a campfire story that's a story told around the campfire and in the, this second book i even say it right up front i say like i want these stories these 19 stories to be told around the campfire mm-hmm. in the future like mm-hmm. i want these to be part of our New mythology. I don't know how I phrase it, but I basically say like the, you know that that. That's straight down that supernatural thing that they wrote about in the book. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm a big fan of that book. So the supernatural book. This is all. This is all. I'm only like thirty or forty pages into it. So that book was published in February of 2016, and my first owl book was published in December of 2015. So they're within two months of each other. Mm Hmm. And so that means we were both writing those books together, like same time. Like I was in a cabin in Maine, or right. in Maine, excuse me, upstate New York, and and they were, you know, Kripal and Strieber were throwing whatever Texas back and, and forth in Los Angeles, and yeah, and and um, I think he's in Texas too, actually, Rice University. Yeah, and the mascot of Rice University is an owl. Is an owl. <laughs> <laughs> What's on the cover? The owl shows up is all over that supernatural book is it really yeah it's all over the supernatural book yeah. oh, oh oh and i was jumping back to uh uh kenneth arnold had a copy of the complete works the complete books of charles fort in his house beforehand no after okay after so <clears throat> i oh. think that was a it's weird to try and figure out what as a as a, as a, a witness because usually when somebody's a witness and it's first first kind or whatever, it's far away, that don't really affect him that much. But for Arnold, it looks like it did. It was almost like a close encounter where he just kind of flipped well, his... Well, he, he had multiple UFO sightings. 
Oh not yeah. Just, oh, multiple UFO sightings. Okay. And from the, some from the plane, some from yeah. So, but um. So his his worldview and, and but his. But he was basically asked to be. People were people were coming to him. Yeah. Plus he him, plus he became a, a, a lightning nexus, rod. Yeah, a lightning yeah. rod. Exactly. That's a better word. And then um, and he said, he told an interviewer like, this guy Charles Fort, he was onto it. He has the same <laughs> conclusions I have, which is wild. But you know he so he was so what now we're going back to the 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 supernatural, which is the book by Strieber and Kripal in my book, and I'm very cautious because they're brilliant and and yeah. but we both have owls on the cover they have an owl eye on the cover of their book that's right i don't right. know if you have a paperback version the new paper no version no no i have i have a kindle and the kindle might have the 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 owl eye on it okay and and so and there's owls in both of them and there's there's parallels between those two books and deeper and, ones that we we can't get to well, in two we'll minutes. never get to them and yeah, yeah but so the uh but the that just seemed weird to me that that and yeah. both of those guys i'd interviewed both of them and they're both my heroes in a lot of ways. Kripal's book, um, uh, Mutants and Mystics, is like, I told it to him. And I said, listen, God put you on earth to write that book just so I could read it. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? He laughed. Yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, which is true, I think. I mean, that was like when I read that book, I was like, oh, my God, this is for me. This is like candy. Every page is delicious. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, my God. This is I haven't gotten funny. to that yet. I got, oh, that's his. That's his what's, the, what's the other one that ever, all the people suggest, uh, at least in our, our field? It's um, um, I've got it out in the other room. I just haven't started it. Um, Mutants and Mystics. No. It's, uh, Authors of the Impossible. That's it. Yeah. yeah. There's a whole chapter on Valet in there. There's a whole chapter on Charles Fort. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, all these people, yeah. I'm sure. That's, is there a chapter on Keel in there? There might be. Yeah, there should be. There, there might actually be. Yeah, I can't remember who it is, but yeah. Well, I got to check it out. Anyway, I'm trying to read Supernatural and Authors of the Impossible at the same time. And they've just been. It's one of those things where you know you got 15 books going. Oh, and stop! Yeah, I just you have no idea. Like how we're like, oh golly, all of them on Kindle. Like, what? Look, this looks good. Like, I actually went through a period where I said I'm going to read every UFO abductee self-written book. That didn't last long. I was before I realized, holy shit, that's impossible. Like, like I mean, I guess nothing's impossible, but no, no, it's I would, it's. I would have it's to not have, impossible. It just has to take over your life. It would take over my life. I mean, I look have. look at the here. The, I'm halfway through all the. Look at the one on the top. I've always wanted to read that book. It's about Jeff the Talking Mongoose. You oh. know that 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 case in uh, Isle of Man, 1930s, UK. Oh, I don't know anything about it. Uh, I read that. I read an account of it when I was a kid. I think it was written either by Nandor Fodor or one of the other people that uh, investigated it. Um, it's a poltergeist. Uh, but it was, do you know the Bell Witch story? Mm-hmm. That was in uh, 19th century in, oh God, I think the Midwest. Anyway, similar story. Um, a family starts having poltergeist activity. Then they start hearing knockings and scratchings on the wall. And then the thing starts making noise like an animal. And then eventually it starts talking like in a articulate voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what this. this uh, Did they ever see the monk? Like, they didn't have a. They saw mongoose. it a couple of times. They saw what they thought looked like what they think a mongoose would look like. I think even some of the investigators saw it. Um, but mostly it was just a disembodied voice that said it was living in the walls or whatever. And. It would do things. This was the Bell Witch did this too. It would it would bring them news of what was going on at other na- other people's houses miles away, and it was absolutely right. 
Um, and the activity centered in both cases, Bell Witch and this, the activity centered on the teenage girl in the house. Well, that's something that... that that's a poltergeist. That's... A, that's a, um, so they all think... Fred Steiger know, was like, oh, like girls in puberty are like, there's like a change. There's like a... Yes. There's like a... What, yeah. it, what was the anti-structure? It's, yeah, yeah. Anti-structure. It's, it's uh, uh, you know, um, Jeff Ritzman's limina- liminality again. Yeah. Where a lot of... Well, actually, he pulled that from uh, George Hansen. Um but yeah, that the, this this girl lived out in the middle of nowhere with her parents. Her parents had had her late, so they're like older parents. Yeah. You know, she's seventeen, and her parents are like in their forties and fifties. Um, nothing to do there. She's kind of a moody type. Anyway, that uh, so and the thing said it was a mongoose. It was a little mongoose, a little furry mongoose, but it happened to be able to talk. And somebody, um, what's his name? Ca- 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 what's the author's name? I just actually found him online on facebook or something because eventually i want to have him on the show and talk about it it's a fascinating case i always loved that case i read about it when i was like a kid when i was like six eight ten years old and that's an entire volume about that case but that's just one book that's sitting on there along with supernatural and stories of the messengers and you know and and the twin peaks book over there and what's that one yeah i've got uh what um yep that one's almost done. There's a Long John Neville book down on the bottom, which I have finished. I was using it for reference. Secret Machines by Tom DeLonge. Get on it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I did not pay for that. Somebody lent it to me. It's so a... I, bought, I bought that book on Kindle. And the reason you buy it on Kindle is so you can go to the, to the word search. Ah, yeah. And I searched owl. Did you get something? Oh, yeah. There's two owls things in the book they're both completely benign they don't mean anything at all one yeah. is like something where someone's in the woods and they're like oh and then you just you know you just that night we hear you know there's like hear owls and but this doesn't have anything to do with anything and there's another one where they're driving into area 51 and then oh oh did, did you see that that was an owl right in front of the windshield and the next thing you know i think it's i just that's the only little snippet i read and i kind of continue and i like what happens after and they get kind of their little car gets cornered by the, the by the you know the the security combat security and then they get taken to an underground space and so yeah i don't think i don't even know if i'm going to read that it's i've started reading it. i was like uh, i mean i'm i'm i can't get through i can't this. i don't know i haven't heard have you heard any i mean it's really funny there's reviews on it and the reviews seem sort of good on amazon and but i've never talked to Dan, i don't know you, you can astroturf amazon pretty well if you got enough people yeah so I don't know. I, I really don't know about the book. I don't even know if I want to read it. That's not. I wanted to read the other one, the the Lavenda one, but that was the one that got lent to me. Yeah, I've got both of them, and I haven't been able to read either of them. Yeah, but all, this all, is another one of those things where like, like crap. It's a, like that's a six hundred page book. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a big investment to like. Yeah, that's a, that's a big investment of time, and yeah. you know, I've I've got, and then I've got you know thirty on my Kindle. Jeff, the talking mongoose is much thinner. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Right under that is Zen and the Art of Archery. I don't even know what's underneath that. There's a couple Zen books in there. Is that the Great Doubt book? No. UFO drawings from the National Archives by David Clark. I love that book. It's just basically UFO paintings or drawings. Some of them are paintings. It's beautiful. I want to take some of those paintings and like cover an entire wall with one of them. Oh, Lynn Buchanan, Seven Cents. There we go. That's the... Yeah, that's Lynn. Uh, I saw him a couple years ago, and he handed that to me and asked if I, he said, could you please read my, my fictional book, and I still haven't oh, finished it. Oh, it's a fiction? It. Yeah, it's a fiction book. Oh, that's actually, I've, you know, I've had, I should be careful. I'm, I'm actually thinking about, I'm work, writing a fiction thing, incorporating all this owl stuff in it. And, and I've kind of done some notes and started the writing and stuff like that, and it seems like it's a, 
I had an idea for a comic book. So, but the UFO researcher experience or writing the book of fiction is has always been a like I've never actually it's, read a it's, book except it's, for yeah, some it's it's fraught with problems. There's incredible ones and there's pieces of crap. What's an incredible one? Majestic, I thought was incredible. That's the first one that comes yeah, to mind. So. That's my favorite, probably my favorite UFO fiction book. Just because there are so many things in there that ring much truer than the stuff in a lot of nonfiction books. And Just that was because his sense. that's what and he and Whitley Strieber says it. But I hear you're lining the microphone up. I'll speak right into it. <laughs> that was Whitley Strieber says it. That um, uh, he said, you know, I've heard a lot of things, and there was only one way I could get this out is through fiction. Yeah. So, which is well, there's there's a lot of ways to express ideas in fiction that are that are a lot more, what, they will hit your soul a lot more. It's going to hit your le- your right brain a lot better than your left brain, and if something hits your right brain the, r- the right way, it's going to sink in a lot better. Yeah. That's why people like listening to things in in music rather than just having people say it, mm-hmm. because there's there's an emotional component in there, you know. Yeah. And the um, uh, what's what's his name? Um, uh, Jim Mars wrote a fiction book. Mm. Um. I didn't know that. Uh, something of the Rose. It's kind of a World War II conspiracy espionage thing with uh, uh, the Catholic Church in France trying to hide things and keeping secrets. and kind mm, of a, Okay. And it looks great. Um, uh, and I've never read it. I have it on my shelf. But it's very funny. He said, yeah, I wrote a book of fiction. Yeah, it was really hard. You know, the, the difference between fiction and nonfiction? Fiction has to make sense. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which is why I suck at it. Every time I try to start writing, try to start write fiction, I throw away the first two pages, yeah. and then I don't want to start again yeah. because it sounds horrible. Yeah, I tried years ago. I keep like that's why I was trying to like use Mac as a crutch. Yeah, well, <laughs> get him to channel it. So yeah, I'll channel Mac. We're over two hours now, and oh. probably you might want to you might want to think about up? it, huh? How are you holding up? I'm fine. Okay, well we can roll wind it down all right anything any final thoughts or no thank you for letting me talk quite a bit but that's how i do this show that's fine and i'm i try to talk enough that i you know i've got what i want to say in it but i don't want to be one of those things where you know you've heard a lot of podcasts where the host talks way too goddamn much well and you kind of wonder why they have a show yeah what were you gonna say i do that too i had a podcast and i would talk too much so that's Oh, I always. And then I would I always edit myself down. I, that's one of the things about. Oh, yeah. Down. Well, I do that too, so I, and take all I was the ums and very uhs liberal out. about editing myself down. I did the ums and stuff like that. I'm less worried about that these days. I guess I should be less worried about it, but uh, it's just a habit to edit everything. I mean, I'm trying this. I'm trying some. I can some. Say, I can almost. I don't have to do anything. I listen to them you, actually at like 1.4 speed. Just so I don't have to sit through the whole thing for the oh, same. How interesting. What do you have, GarageBand or? No, no. I use Audacity. Okay. And it's got a setting on it where you can hit. There's a little control. That's on sure. my other computer right now. But it's got a little control with a slider on it, so you can play at it. You know, the, slower than without one. it getting high pitched. Like it doesn't get squeaky. Like no, it doesn't. Yeah. No. Well, it gets it gets a little higher pitched, but there's a sweet spot. Like if I have a woman on, I can't make it more than like 1.4 because it gets. <laughs> but if I have a guy on, I can probably push it to one five. Um, but usually I'm like in the 1.3 speed, mm-hmm. like one and a third speed. Of uh, of actual speed, and that way I can get through it quicker, and the editing process goes faster because I can understand what everybody's saying, but I don't have to sit there in real time, and it cuts the you know it'll cut my editing down by about an hour. How interesting! Yeah, because I don't think GarageBand has that, and I've got, I've, I've achieved mastery at GarageBand at this point. And GarageBand is problematic in some ways because 
it's got all this loop stuff in it. So if you push the wrong button, all of a sudden you're like looping everything. Like, so you know, like, you uh, make a, a house music thing out of your podcast. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's taking a while to open this oh. up. But anyway, but I trust. I mean, everyone who says basically says Audacity is an excellent program. Yeah, and, and it's learning and curve it's free. Is and, and yeah, it's real. And then plus, I've been using I've been using uh, all kinds of professional editing programs. So. I, you, it's almost intuitive. So, like, I'll play this. Something appeared in the photo that was that wasn't seen by none of them. So then I can crank this up to like one point three nine speed. It sounds like this. Something. Ap- Whoops. Here we go. Something appeared in the photo that was that wasn't seen by none of them. When they developed some, it, some, yeah. When they developed it, yeah. But more importantly, it seems that totally understandable. That, I can hear what, what somebody's what saying. To me is after that, Graham himself, who had never. I mean, I can even probably crank it up slightly more and still understand. Like, let's say like 1.66. Something appeared in the photo that, was, that wasn't seen by none of That's them. That's Miguel. Oh, I knew who it was. Yeah. It but more importantly, it seems that after that, and this is what really was interesting to me, is after that. So that's at like 1.6. So that's going to cut my editing down quite a bit. Well, so I'm going, I'm like, when I, yeah, like I'm, I just did, edited my, my audio book. Yeah. Oh my God. I had to like every little like mouth sound and every little like there's little ticks that show up like just like little you know if you put your mouth way too close to the microphone you get these little mouth sounds and yeah stuff. and uh we've I, had a cricket going the whole time i'm just gonna leave it because i like it oh the crickets and i wouldn't work on an audiobook like there's a there's no 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 i mean this is this is just for my show yeah. I, I i don't care that the crits crickets going and plus if i didn't open the window we'd be we'd be we'd sweating be. so and uh, I, spe- I went into David Perkins' house, and we just sat on his back porch in his beautiful house in Santa Fe. David Perkins, the the, the diary of a hitman, or what? What's no, no, he's uh, Chris O'Brien's silent research partner okay. on on the uh, cattle mutilation things uh, since the beginning, and he started looking at it like in the mid '70s. So he's been there from like the get go. So I went to his house. Chris said, "You guy really got to talk to David," and I did. We had a great talk. But the thing is. Um, I just took my little recorder here, and it's got you know it's got microphone, little stereo microphone on there. It's it's for musicians to record sessions, but I we just sat on his on his back porch, in his garden, and you can hear birds going, you can hear cars going, and I kind of filtered out the cars, but it's wonderful because we're just sitting out there with yeah birds and insects and stuff going, and I I like the fact that that was the interview yeah. Um, when I do this this inter- this these things at home, usually I have the window closed or. Um, if I'm doing a podcast on somebody's podcast, I will close the window and close the door and make it as quiet as possible. But I've gotten to the point now, it's like, I don't, you know, having the cricket out there is actually, I kind of like it. So that, that there's some technical stuff people don't want to know about podcasting. Which music do you want to hear at the end? The guest always picks. I, do you know what a song I love? What? Uh, there's a song called Frenchie by Link Ray. Oh, Link you know, Ray. Do you know that? Uh, no Frenchie oh, by Link Ray. Frenchie, Frenchie. That's got it. Link Ray. There's all a bunch of Link Ray stuff there. Dang. You stumped it's a, it's it. It's a real song. It's a wonderful song. Uh, Hank Marvin in the Shadows doing Man of Mystery. Ooh, that might be on there. That'll definitely be on there. 